The Juggernaut is a huge Dazzler fan, which is code for a homosexual. Dazzler attacks him to try and prove that she's like a powerful X-Man still. He thinks he's killed Dazzler. Can you imagine? It's 1988 or whatever. And you're a gay man who accidentally killed Kylie Minogue. Right. The horror. The horror. X-Men. X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is... X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is Evan Narcisse, writer of comics, video games, all sorts of things. You may know him from his work in the past as a comics journalist and cultural critic. He is here with me today to talk about Alison Blair, the Disco Dazzler, a character I love. As I said last week, she is incredibly stupid, but in the best possible way. And I adore her and I want nothing but the best for her. So I'm excited to have a spotlight on Dazzler this week. Evan, how are you doing today? Good, good. I'm excited to talk about Dazzler for real. Like, I agree with everything you said except the stupid part. When I say stupid, I mean like, that is my child and I love her. But like, she's (laughs) an idiot. You know what I mean? Like, it's that. Yeah. It's a good kind of stupid. I'll protect her with my life, like I will. Yes. Not that she needs it, because she's immortal. We'll get into that. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) You're probably going to remind me of some stuff that I've forgotten over the course of this, over the course of her publishing history. That's my job. Don't worry about it. Yeah, no, but I'm good. You know, I'm working on a bunch of stuff that I can't talk about, unfortunately, but it's really cool. And, you know, building on my core competencies of being a, a professional superhero nerd for my entire life. Actually, no, I've only been professional for half of my life, but so it's, uh, I'm, I'm doing good. I started this podcast in the pandemic, obviously, and the how are you doing has always been kind of a, well, I've been better. Yeah, yeah. But I feel like finally we're in a place where people are starting to actually feel good about like yeah. the near future, yeah. Yeah. which is nice. But yeah, so you have worked on Black Panther. You did the narrative design for the Miles Morales yeah, video game. Yeah, I was a consultant on, on the on Miles Morales game, which was a great experience. I wasn't sure when to mention it, but now is probably the right time. Like, again, if you want proof of my bona fides um, or bona fides, I always forget which one is supposed to be right. I think bona fides is fine. We're in America. We can <laughs> we can say it however the hell we want, in my opinion, yeah, right? Yeah, But um, if you want proof of my bona fides as a Dazzler fan, there's an Easter egg in one of the side quests I wrote in the Miles Morales game where he and um, his childhood friend are... Um, they they place time capsules all over the city of stuff that they want to dig up in like ten ten years, and uh, one of them has tickets from a from a, a Dazzler and Lila Cheney concert. I have seen that, and I've never played this game, but someone sent me that. Like, hey, look at yeah, this. Yeah, and, and and that's all me. Like when Love you make that. a game, you, you you sometimes you forget what you do because it really is a group effort. But like, that's all me. My client Kara Ellison is a narrative designer, and yeah, I know Kara. Yeah, it's always just a fascinating. Yeah, because it's so different from writing. Very different. Very a book different. or a comic that yeah. I'm always sometimes just you're like, right. Sometimes huh. you're sometimes you're you're more about the feel and the tone than the actual words and the plot logic of a particular experience. 
Right. Or things like the player is going to encounter this. What logically is the way that this scene should right. play out because it's a user experience? I'm like, wow, that's weird. You know, it's just a different. And, and, and sometimes you have to write around the fact that they may not do the thing that you want them to do. Right, you know? Exactly. Like, yeah. It's kind of like running a role playing game session or something yeah, on the fly. Yeah. Except you have to run it to all potential inevitabilities. You don't just run to what the one player thinks. You have to run right. it for what every player is thinking. Yeah. So that sounds hard. I'm glad I don't do it for a living. But if anybody <laughs> ever wants me to consult, I love consulting. That's, you know, just giving my opinion on things. That's my favorite thing to do. Uh. So one correction about last week, last week's episode on Myra McTaggart, nay Canras. I got confused in one of the reader questions. I thought that when they said she, they were talking about Moira. But they were talking about Gene and Cable having a conversation. It was an, an issue I had forgotten about in the Chris Claremont revolution period. That's very strange when he came back for like a hot second in oh, 2000. Yeah. I had completely forgotten about this scene. It is weird. I don't know what Gene's implying there. And that is a question that I will ask Chris Claremont someday when he comes on for, I don't know, the Stevie Hunter episode or something. We'll make it work. Whatever Chris wants to do, we'll do. We'll do Lee Forrester. We'll do Sharon Friedlander. I'm in. Like, I'm game. I think Stevie would be great because she's like the human friend, right? Like That's what I was thinking. Like, first of all, we could talk about God Loves Man Kills, which would be, I think, a funny conversation to have with him now because he gets it. Like, he knows that that was not Look, perfect. man, but you know what? I read that when it came out as a kid. And 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 the intent is legible, you yes. know? For the people who haven't read, we're talking about the couple scenes in the 80s where Kitty uses the N-word to make a point. And Chris Claremont has said he would prefer... If he could go back to change that, he's like, it was a very different time, and I don't think it reads the same way now. When she does it, it's always in the service of saying, racism against black people is obviously wrong. Therefore, being a bigot against mutants is also wrong. Much like racism is bad, this is bad. But this anti-mutant prejudice is right. bad, yeah. And she usually also compares it, like, she'll throw out some anti-Semitic slurs. She does, like, she, at Larry Bodine's funeral, she says every slur in the book. She's like, faggot. I'm like, kitty, no. You know, it's very much, you know, it's just very much, it was a different time. So yeah, that would be fun. I also just think that what he did that was interesting with characters like Stevie was build out the wider world and show us how people reacted to the X-Men outside of their little cloistered community. Yeah. Dazzler is kind of an interesting case there because Dazzler is a character who Claremont didn't have anything to do with the creation of which is unusual for a character that would become prominent in the 80s material. In fact, the lone characters that Claremont really, apart from the Ween and Cochran characters that Claremont inherited very quickly after like one issue, the characters that are really prominent throughout his 80s run tend to be characters he created, with the exception of Dazzler and Longshot, who are characters that were created respectively by Tom DeFalco and Jim Shooter and John Romita for Dazzler. And by Anne Nascenti and Art Adams for a long shot, in both cases, they were characters that everybody wanted to keep in circulation. Yeah. So if Dazzler's book is tanking, let's put her on the X-Men. Much like they had introduced her. The reason people think she's a Chris Claremont creation is because her first appearance is in the Dark Phoenix saga. Right. In uh, X-Men 130. Yeah. Right after... God Spare the Child, which we've mentioned a bunch because that issue introduces Kitty and Emma. The following issue introduces Dazzler. It's a lot of people who just became important later coming in in this one intro salvo to that arc. So people think sometimes that he created her, but it actually is a much more complicated story that we will get into in a moment. But first, 
I would love to hear a bit, Evan, about your backstory with these characters, your origin story with the X-Men, what draws you to the X-Men, why you love them, and eventually, as we get through the narrative of your life, why you wanted to talk about Dazzler with me today, because when you suggested her, I was very excited. Yeah, so, um, you know, it's funny, I've been thinking about what was my first X-Men comic, and it's hard to pin down exactly when, but it was definitely during the Claremont era, right? My strongest memories are of reading the X-Men right after the Dark Phoenix saga. So my earliest X-Men memories are the that first Brood storyline, maybe actually even the second. I remember it was Paul Smith art. I definitely have inten- like intensely vivid memories. By the time high school rolled around, Marvel had put out a, a special edition of the Dark Phoenix saga. It was a collection, but it wasn't square bound like a graphic novel. It was still like side staple staple bound and there was this big interview at the end with claremont and burn and shooter and maybe even like uh innocenti or and louise jones who would later marry walt simonson become louise simonson but i think it was all the principal creators and they were it was a big long interview where they talked about the choices that were made during the storyline and there was that sequence which has gone on to become kind of infamous within fan circles where some of the creators it may have been claremont was pushing for gene to live and be depowered yeah, Claremont and Byrne both wanted her to live, and Shooter insisted yeah. that she had to die or be imprisoned for life in Shi'ar space. And Claremont was like, well, if she's an alien prison, the X-Men are going to spend their lives trying to break her out. And Shooter was like, well, they can't do that. And Claremont was like, well, then why don't I just fucking kill her? And Shooter right. was like, okay, approved. And Chris was like, wait, 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 that's not, that's not, uh, well, and then it yeah. was settled. I didn't read Dark Phoenix in real time. But the beginning of my engagement with the X-Men was definitely shortly thereafter. Right. So like mid-80s. Yeah, mid-80s. Yeah, early to mid-80s. And, you know, what pulled me in was all the melodrama, right? You know, like X-Men is like big, big soap opera. The biggest. I'm a 70s and 80s baby, right? So my mom was watching General Hospital when Luke and Laura, their first romantic go-around. Like that was a daily ritual for me to come after school and my mom, when she wasn't working the night shift, she she's a nurse who used to work a ten hour, rather twelve hour shift. So either she'd be asleep during the day or asleep at night. But no, no matter what shift she was working, like GH was the thing. That's so funny. I imagine being a nurse and watching General Hospital is funny. Oh yeah, my parents are lawyers, and they always find law shows like really just <laughs> right, baffling. Right. They actually had a party in law school for Luke and Laura's wedding. Really? Like all of the the whole like class had like, a, it was like, everybody wear your best. We're going to have a cake. Like it was like a whole thing. <laughs> That's hilarious. That was a moment. So like melodrama in that kind of storytelling mode was already like a thing I was used to, like in my home life. And to see it replicated in the comics with superpowers and secret identities and all this cosmic stuff like was just like the 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 icing on the cake for me. So that's definitely how I came to X-Men. You know, uh it wasn't so much the 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 metaphors for marginalized people that drew me in at first, you know, that mm-hmm. was something later that I glommed onto. Definitely by the time you get to like uh uh like Project Wide Awake and and Senator Robert yeah. Kelly. Claremont and- built that up over time. Because it's not in the 60s stuff particularly. It's not. And that's, I will rail against that till the end of my end of my days. When Stanley takes credit for it, may you rest in peace. But it's like, honey, you didn't do that. That was not there. It was, and the thing <laughs> is, like, it may have been, like, subconsciously there and ambiently there. I'll give him and Kirby that much. I think there's a Jewish 
element there that's like we're in the suburbs we have to pretend to be like everybody yeah. else and yeah. if people find out about our special school they're going to be upset with us like that i think is very much there but the idea retroactively that he that stanley no. would always say like oh well you know we were inspired by martin luther king and malcolm x I'm like that's not it true. just it's just not true up. right it, and like it, you know yeah and, you know, like, Roy Thomas ramps that up a little bit, you know? like He does, he does, but I, like, the comparison is always funny to me because, like, they're patting themselves on the back for it, I'm like, if you're trying to tell me that 60s Magneto was supposed to be Malcolm X, I have news Then y'all didn't understand be. what Malcolm X was about. <laughs> you're telling you probably, them yourselves. You probably yeah. should not be patting yourself on the back, right? No, exactly. But all that to say, it, it wasn't that that pulled me in at first, but I appreciated it as Claremont's tenure continued. But, yeah, that was my first, my first brush with the X-Men was... Like right after Dark Phoenix, and you know it's a hell of a time to be encountering the team. You know, oh yeah, like they're down. You know, Gene is gone. Cyclops quits. Cyclops quits. You know, there's still like this intense air of grief around the team, and and Kitty comes in. That's when it becomes uncanny. Yes, it's when that's they right. add the adjective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it um it was it was a really great time, and you know from from like the creative contributor standpoint like i'm still a paul smith fan to this day just the way love paul smith. those characters is just amazing so that was that was my first my first point of contact and i still look fondly um on those books uh uh you know despite how dated some of the kind of the craft approaches are but like yeah listen i don't think there's anything better than claremont and smith and claremont and sylvestri that is my x-men to the end of my life like i love everything happening right now i love the grant morrison era but to me 80s x-men is it. it is in full flower it's just so good and like even the things that are dated about it you just look at it, you're like that's fine yeah i'm reading something from 1982 i'm like i wasn't born yet this is fine this is it's my birthday today by the way as we're recording happy this. birthday connor thank you i am 33 years old like alexander the great and jesus christ when they died i don't think i've accomplished as much as those two guys did in 33 years but well, i'm working how many, on it. how many episodes of this podcast do you have in the can That's this a lot. is episode 28 so that feels pretty good Jesus ain't recording a podcast. He did not, certainly. So I, you know what? In that case, I am a little bit ahead of the game. He was a lot better at Hebrew than me, though. I'm struggling. I'm struggling <laughs> with this late in life bar mitzvah thing I'm doing. In any case, my thing is like my dad was a collector. So I had all of it. Oh, you had, oh, so you had a leg up. I'm jealous. Uh -huh. oh, yeah, man. like, no, that's, this podcast would not be possible. It's like, you know, they say this about learning languages. I'm terrible at languages. I always have been. Like, tengo un poquito de español. That's about it. But, like, it's because I didn't grow up speaking anything else. Like, my sister's fiancé, they're getting married soon. He is from Hong Kong, and he speaks Mandarin and Cantonese. And I said to her, I was like, you're going to have to get with the program because your kids are going to know Chinese. And if you don't learn, like, now... yeah. You're never going to learn, and they're going to be completely fluent, and everybody's going to be talking shit about you in your own house. Yes. And my brother-in-law was like, he's not wrong. You know, you probably should learn. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so yeah, I always say, like, the other language I learned growing up was the X-Men, because when I'm, like, seven or eight, my dad gives me, it was those first Marvel Masterworks. Oh, Wow. Yeah, he was like, these are hardcovers, don't... Yeah, those were, like, yeah, well-produced. Yeah, and so it was the 60s run and then the giant size run. They put out, like, yeah. the first of each of those. The 60s run never really did it for me. The 70s run was really the thing. I was obsessed with Storm because what small gay boy was not obsessed with Storm? That's just, like, the way of the world, right? Yeah, 
Yeah. This will become relevant to the Dazzler conversation, but this is just a funny anecdote about my childhood. My mother had no problem with it, but she had like this idea in her head that I was going to end up marrying a black woman because I was obsessed specifically with Storm, Naomi Campbell, Grace Jones, yeah. and Aaliyah. And she was just like, well, clearly Connor is attracted. I was like, no, mom, I'm gay. And they're like, iconic. It's like a very different... Like, they're all stunning, don't get me wrong, but it's not like, I I don't want to date them. Grace Jones, of course, was the original model for Dazzler. Yeah. Should we get into that now? We'll get into that a bit later, I think, because I want to continue with your journey. But I always think about that because that's truly wild. I actually think if that had happened, we might not have gotten the punk Storm that is clearly so Grace Jones influenced. Yes. Yeah. Because I think they did it with Storm instead when they weren't. Yeah. When it didn't happen with Dazzler. But we'll get there. So you were reading in the 80s. When did Dazzler capture your imagination? You know, it's funny. I remember seeing that that iconic painted cover of the first issue of her solo series. Yeah. But I don't think I read it then. You know, I probably dipped into her solo series a little bit. The solo series is weird. It's oh a weird God, book. Oh my God, it's so weird. It's so weird. <laughs> but I think... I would pick it up whenever there were guest stars, right? Right. There's like that two or three issue arc where she's like in space with Galactus. She does become a Herald of Galactus briefly, yes. Yes, yeah. Wasn't there, there was a what if around that too. There's a what if where she becomes his Herald and it's actually very, very sad. Yes, yeah. She spends hundreds of years or whatever making sure that he eats only uninhabited planets and then they finally go back to Earth and she discovers that it has become an uninhabited planet and she's all alone. Yeah, yeah. That's like, wow, that's fucked up. But that, you know, what, what if may have been my entry point now that I think that's about That's a it. crazy first Dazzler issue, actually. <laughs> but I love that for you. <laughs> yeah, that may have been my entry point. But, you know, I really fell in love with her post-disco era when it's Archie Goodwin and Paul Chadwick on her solo series. Mm-hmm. It's just so wild to think about Paul Chadwick, who, like, most people may not know is best known for um, a character called Concrete, which is this very literary, sober riff on the thing. It's a speechwriter who gets his body trapped into a massive stone body. And um, he's like a, this pro-ecology character, just amazingly beautiful stuff. But like, he's not somebody you associate with superhero comics nowadays, or, right. or at least he's not best known for superhero comics. So to him to be drawing this weird outlier superhero comic was a weird time. But yeah, like, I remember the, the the issue that cemented I love this character was when um, during that run when Wolverine and, and Colossus basically jump her into the X Men. They like you know <laughs> they they like it's like if the X Men are a gang and when you get your initiation, yeah, beat up, beat up by other members. That's what they right. did. They do absolutely jump her into the team. Like hope you survive the experience, but actually, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah that that was the issue where I was like, okay, and then I would go back. And look for guest appearances of her and, and stuff like that. Like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, she, I think, is just such a great character. She has something unique in the way that she really just wants to groove. You know, yeah. like she really just wants to, like, be an artist. But invariably, because she is a good person. Yeah. There are other characters where they reject the call to heroism because they don't want to do it. She never has that Spider-Man moment right? where she's like, no, I'm a cool guy. I don't need yeah. to be, and then has to learn a valuable right. lesson. She doesn't make that initial mistake, yeah. Right. Dazzler always, though, her 
priority is to become a famous singer her inherent soul like moral always compass, yeah, yeah like she cannot help herself from going all right i have superpowers though so if there's a problem i'm gonna help people yeah i love how bizarre her trajectory is because she is now seen for sure 100 percent as an x-men character but for most of that period you're talking about she was a solo character more associated with the avengers frankly yeah than with the x-men she just happened to be a mutant because that's an easy backstory to give a character and it tied you into the x-men franchise which before there were any rights disputes about movie stuff that was appealing because the x-men were the most popular book so when you look at the dazzlers rogues gallery in her solo book it's like her arch enemy is the enchantress from thor which is bizarre the very beginning of the dazzler solo book is dazzler and enchantress have a singing contest oh my god it's so hilarious and dazzler wins and enchantress swears vengeance for the rest of it's time so catty it's so it's so like... good and then there's a follow-up later where like they have a rematch in asgard and odin declares dazzler the finest singer in the nine worlds and enchantress is fucking furious it's so good part of the appeal for me with dazzler is like i said i'm a 70s baby i'm an 80s baby i was born in 1972 i'm 48 i grew up listening to disco you know right you know the vgs were on the radio when i was growing up abba you know like yeah i grew up hearing donna summer and i cannot tell you how many times my mom played i will survive by gloria Gaynor growing up because she got divorced when we were like eight years old and she was like mm-hmm. she made that her anthem so you know disco was a part of my life so I grew up watching like Solid Gold, Solid Gold Dancers. Love Solid Gold. It sounds funny to say it all these decades later. Jesus, I'm old. But like <laughs> dis- disco balls, like as a like totemic icon yeah. in my life was like huge, you know? Like yeah. you you just there's the point in time where you would turn on the TV and you you couldn't escape disco balls, right? And the influence of disco as a culture. And you know, like if I can get even more meta, meta for a second, like disco has its roots in like, you know, African cultural production, mm-hmm. right? Like M- Manu Dibango is a, um, a funk musician, jazz musician um, from Cameroon, I believe, but like is one of the primary architects of disco, right? Like if you know, is that Michael Jackson ad lib? Mama say, Mama sa, Mama yeah. sa. That's from like a, one of, that's from Somakosa, which is yeah. one of uh, Manu Dibango's songs. So anyway, like I didn't know this stuff at the time, but like I was vibing off the groove, right? And I think, you know, the idea that Dazzler lived in this world and was a superhero in this world was like really appealing to me yeah not that i've ever been a club kid or at all like like a night scene nightclub scene kind of dude like i'm an awkward nerd who can't <laughs> dance but like maybe and maybe that was part of it too but like yeah, maybe no. but i'll say like i was a club kid and i've always loved dazzler because you can imagine her in those clubs like particularly now i'm born in 88 by the time i'm going to clubs of disco is obviously nostalgic more than anything else. And the thing about Dazzler that kind of screwed them was that by the time she actually debuted on the comics page, disco was kind of on its way, way out, out. Yeah, as popular so. music. Yeah. So as you said, they, they sort of rebrand in her solo title and then into the X-Men her into a Pat Benatar kind of yes. yeah. pop rock artist instead. One of the things that's so interesting about Dazzler's publishing history is that, like, celebrity culture changes so much over the arc of her publishing history. And she has to change with the sliding timescale because she has to be current. So it's bizarre when you look at the full breadth of her appearances and she comes in looking like Andrea True Connection. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know? That's, I guess, a good moment to get into that. So Dazzler was created as essentially a multimedia marketing scheme. Casablanca Records came to Marvel and said, we want to do a multimedia production where we put out an album, we promote an artist, and you turn the artist into a superhero who has a comic book. And Filmworks got involved and wanted to do a movie also. So initially, Jaramita Jr. drafts up, based on Grace Jones, a black woman with a shaved head or close-cropped hair in a silver jumpsuit, incredible design, with the eye makeup. And as you said, disco is traditionally, Giorgio Moroder aside, a black genre. Yeah, yeah. You know, it kind of was a comedy. I mean, Giorgio Moroder is actually relevant because disco as it hit in America was sort of a combination, right, of like black music and this sort of Euro dance music. So you had someone like Giorgio Moroder working with an artist like Donna Summer and you would produce this sort of unified Euro dance funk thing that then took off particularly in the black community and the gay community and obviously there's overlap there but grace jones was called the queen of the gay disco and listen i've seen she touched my hand once and it was like meeting god like she i've seen her perform live several times she's still to this day at like 70 or whatever one of the most astonishing talk about somebody who looks good she looks about 25 still it's an incredible design what happened, unfortunately, yeah. is that the Casablanca Filmworks conglomerate or whatever that at that point was working with Tom DeFalco and Jim Shooter on this project decided, based on the strength of the movie 10, which we can get into all of the uh, complicated racial legacy of Bo Derek and the movie 10, obviously, yeah. because yeah. the Bo Derek braids that are such right. an iconic hairstyle are, of right. course, a black hairstyle that they yep. put on Bo Straight Derek. jacket, straight jacket and then braids. Yeah. So after Bo Derek became this huge star, they decided they wanted Bo Derek to be the face of the multimedia operation. Now, in retrospect, there's actually something kind of funny about it because... Like, obviously, it's bad to whitewash a character, right? For, like, corporate interests. But there is something about Dazzler and her, like, out-of-timeness that is almost funnier now that she debuts as, like, a white disco queen. Because there never was a white disco queen. Yes, yeah. Like, the closest you get is someone like Andrea True Connection. And if you're not familiar, that's, Ma, 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 how do you like? I know that Evan does because he laughs. But, like, she was a one-hit wonder. Right. Then you had ABBA, but they were a band. That's like a different thing. Like yeah. the divas, the disco divas, the Donna Summers, the Evelyn Champagne Kings. Right. All of those women were black. The only exception, and I wouldn't call her disco because it was really funk music, is Tina Marie. She oh comes God. a little later. And also, like her whole gimmick was that she was the white one. Right. Like <laughs> that was... Right. And she was like, I'm not that white. I'm Portuguese. Everybody's like, it's fine. That's it, really. So it doesn't make any sense. Like, the character already doesn't make sense when she debuts. And so the nonsensicalness of her is kind of fun as she continues. But yeah, so they said the Grace Jones look is great, but we want her to be a white blonde woman because we want to use Bo Derek. And they were like, okay. And then Casablanca Records pulled out because the whole thing got too complicated. I also think that they realized disco was on its way out as a trend. And by the way, Dazzler was a suggestion by Marvel. Yeah, I think that's right. 
because they wanted to call the character Disco, Disco Queen, Queen, which yeah. would have been a mess because they had to pivot her out of Disco real fast. And she, it's like roller disco too. It like gets it's real dated yeah, real yeah, quickly, right? Because by the time she debuts, it's nineteen seventy nine. Yeah, you know we're in quote unquote the last days of disco, right? So they pull out, and then Bo Derek or her team or whoever insisted on her husband John Derek directing the movie. Yeah, that was in development, and no one wanted to work with John Derek because he was a famous asshole. And so then the movie got canceled. So then Shooter's left holding the bag. He's like, I have put so much money into this character. We have been pushing her. She has a solo series that we are shoving every Avenger or Spider-Man or oh whoever God. in X-Men into to try and make it sell. We are going to make this character work by God. Eventually, they rebrand her into this sort of Pat Benatar type character to match Lila Cheney's Joan Jett type character. Right. And Chris Claremont's like, well, okay, let's put her on the X-Men and then had a lot of fun with her. But that was the end of Dazzler's brief moment in the sun as potentially a really big character. You know what's funny about like this kind of like the meta aspect, the real world aspect of her origin story is like it's so classic Marvel. You know, yes. they were thirsty ass trend chasers back in the day. Yeah. You know, like, you know, the only reason we have like Iron Fist, Danny Rand. Is because karate was cool at right. that moment. Same thing with Luke Cage, you know, like that was just yeah, black exploitation movies are chic right now. What are we gonna do? And Dazzler is the same thing, you know, like it wasn't in, it didn't originally internally with some of the other characters, but like yeah, with Dazzler, it's like okay, Disco's hot. Let's, let's latch onto this trend. And what's interesting about these the first few issues of the Dazzler comic is that like you can see how paint by numbers it is, right? Oh yeah, like. She has the Peter Parker-esque type of, like... She has the grandma who's like, yeah, yeah May. She has, right, like, it's a whole right. thing. She's got the money problems. My fridge is empty, you know. Right. My daddy doesn't understand me because he wants me to be a lawyer and right. I want to be a singer. I have this overbearing boss, you know, this manager. So, like, it is very, like, paint by numbers. And, you know, the other thing that's interesting about Dazzler is that, like, she crosses streams with the origins of other female characters within Marvel, right? Like, She-Hulk only gets created because Stanley's like, well, this Hulk TV series is a hit. You know, if somebody wants to develop a female version of this, we need to lock this down. That's the only reason She-Hulk exists, right? Yeah, Spider-Woman exists literally to preserve the trademark. Exactly. Because they were afraid that DC would make a Spider-Woman character and then fuck, our brand's diluted. So they invented Jessica Drew in about 10 seconds. (laughs) And you can tell that character's backstory does not make a lick of sense because they had to come up with that in about a week and change. So... You know, it's interesting to think about, like, the core conceptual aspects of these characters in a way being energized and simultaneously hamstrung by, like, these weird, again, outside considerations, right? Like, I think Dazzler's power set, when you describe her power to somebody who doesn't read comics, it sounds cool as fuck, in my opinion. It is cool, but... It's also like, disco, lights, music! Yeah, like, the way it was presented on the page, it was always just like... Boom, I'm making a laser light show. As opposed to she can do... I mean, she's like Monica Rambo in some ways. Like, she can do pretty much anything with electromagnetic light sound energy. And they've never fully explored all of the potential that it has. Yeah, the best explorations of her powers do happen under Claremont, in my opinion. Like, you know, know, she spends like the first, I don't know, five, six years of her powers just like 
making people dizzy, you know? Right. Like right. she's not really she's not really firing lasers consistently until like Claremont gets his hands Claremont's on. Claremont's like, wait, she's a gun though. Yeah. She's literally a human gun. She should just be shooting people. Right. <laughs> like- right. Uh, but it took it took them so long to get there. And I think again, part of that is implicit kind of like considerations of you know, female agency and power, not to get all meta, but I feel like, yeah, you know, like it took so long for them to make her a badass because like, you know, we have to, we have to fold into these other kind of ideas about like what it means for women to wield wield power. It's just like, she was like fainting and shy and retiring. It's like, no, she'll actually kick your ass. And the thing about that is it goes back to a type of comic that died out around the same time. Yeah. Dazzler is sort of the last Marvel romance comic. Yes. You know, it's intended for sort of a female readership that by the 90s, they simply weren't chasing anymore. Right. She's a relatable girl with relatable problems. That Patsy Walker, Millie the Model kind of thing. Legacy, yeah. Yeah. And she, much like Patsy Walker, is a character that in the years since, they've been like, okay, how do we make this character a regular superhero and it's been a rocky road for both of those characters i think because of the way they started yeah claremont gets a hold of her and turns her into one of his powerful female x-men but there's always something a little different about her yeah he explores that in ways i find interesting She's never as self-assured as an X-Man in that run. The Outback stuff is my favorite in yes. general. Yeah. But she's never as, even when she's full of bravado and loves yeah. to just be like, I'm the disco, da-. like, I, she doesn't say disco anymore, but she goes, I'm the dazzler, like, I'm going to, you know, kick your ass. She never has the vigor of someone like Rogue. Right. And she never has the confidence of someone like Storm. And she never has the steely, I'm going to do this whether it's right or wrong, that Psylocke has. You know, like, she's always kind of in between. Yeah. And she bounces off those three characters in very interesting ways throughout that period. Because Betsy is harder than her in the sort of intellectual and moral way. Storm is harder than her in terms of just, like, being the biggest badass you could ever meet. And Rogue is just physically powerful. Right. And of course, they first met when Rogue was a terrorist who was evil and attacked Dazzler like 20 times. So they didn't get off on the right foot necessarily. Dazzler is always in this kind of insecure position, which of course in Inferno becomes her being the one that is corrupted. Right. Which makes sense because she always has craved something more. And she ends up with the X-Men primarily because she fucks up her career. Yeah, yeah. By deciding, I need to be loud and proud as a mutant. And this is where the fact that Dazzler did become a white character is kind of interesting. Yeah, there's some utility to that. Yeah, because Dazzler becomes a character who fully passes as the majority. Right. Right? And can choose to be a pretty white girl who's famous and doesn't have to be a minority of any kind. Right. Unless she chooses to be. And then when she decides, I need to speak out for mutant rights and reveal that I'm a mutant, she's manipulated into doing this by this older man, this Frank Sinatra type who she's sleeping with. Which is like, again, it's like a very weirdly mature comic in a lot of ways and and is very romance driven at times. 
she's sleeping with this creepy con artist guy whose name is Hoboken backwards because he's based in Frank Sinatra. It's like, I can't even think of how to say it, but it's Hoboken literally written backwards. It's his last name, Roman like Nabokko or whatever. Right, right. And he convinces her as a PR stunt, essentially, to come out as a mutant and reveal her mutant powers. But what she ends up doing is terrifying everyone because, like you've pointed out, her mutant power is a particularly dangerous and powerful one. So when they see her vaporizing things with laser blasts or whatever, they're just like, this isn't cool. We don't like this at all, actually. Yeah. And she is ruined. She gets dropped by the label. She gets dropped by her agents. She gets dropped by everybody and winds up in disguise in a brunette wig, which is, of course, for a beautiful blonde, the worst thing that could happen to you as like a keyboardist for Lila Cheney. Yeah. And then gets possessed by Malice. Who appears to her as the beautiful blonde disco dazzler with the long, long hair from back then. So it becomes kind of an interesting, much like I think Kitty Pride is a very interesting character because until she says, I'm Jewish and I'm a mutant, she can operate in human society, white society without the, you know, Dazzler becomes kind of a similar character in a way that's interesting. I think it would be different if she were a black character, because obviously Grace Jones, though she became iconic, never became a mainstream pop star in that way because she was too threatening to white people, frankly. Yeah. And Donna Summer or Gloria Gaynor or Evelyn King or all these other people we could name, they never managed to escape the disco They don't become ABBA. They don't become Barry Gibb. They don't, you know, like... They don't hit those heights. They become iconic to white gay people because we love that music. The nightlife is where that sort of gay and black non-gay crossover culturally was happening. Like when Tina Marie died, my roommate at the time, shout out to Quineva, I love you. We were like both beside ourselves. And she was just like, you are the only white person I know who has any idea who Tina Marie is. I'm so glad that you're here right now. The black community continued to support those artists and the gay community, whether it was whatever race, continued to support those artists. That's it, though. They didn't get like Dazzler to transition into something else, particularly. You even think about people like Rick James and Nile Rodgers, right? Even them. Nile Rodgers has done everything. Nile Rodgers is one of the most incredible artists of all time, but he's not a household name in that way. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. He's just not. White people mostly know Grace Jones from that James Bond movie. Right. You know, like, it's right. not, it's just Maybe not some st- of them know her from Boomerang. Maybe, but not a lot. But not a lot these days, certainly. You know <laughs> right. what I mean? Right. When people say, who do you think Dazzler is like now? I used to say Kylie Minogue. Yes. I thought yeah. was the obvious, like, in America, Kylie Minogue is only beloved by gay people. Yeah. In Europe, and particularly in her native Australia, Kylie Minogue is a gigantic star. Superstar. Huge. Bigger than Madonna in some places, you know? But here, she never quite managed to escape being a gay artist, in part because she does Euro disco-infused dance music. I mean, that's what she does. Yeah. She would always be the example. But now, when it's interesting, in Children of the Atom, the first issue of that, finally, after a year. I haven't read it yet. Oh, it's so, so good. I mean, I'm a, I'm a Vita Ayala stan, so, like, I would read, like... I love Vita, too. Yeah. If Vita wrote the phone book, like, I would read it. Like, Vita can write anything. I follow them anywhere. They wrote an excellent Storm one-shot. They certainly did. That, that Storm... I would like to see them on a Storm solo. I've said this anyway, many times. Anyway, we're digressing. Anyway, we're digressing. Point is, in Children of the Atom 1, it's mentioned that, like, the teens are really excited about Dazzler's new single with Lizzo. I thought that was really great, because... People always say this when, like, Pixie loved Dazzler. Or, like, whenever a young character loves yeah. Dazzler, they're like, would the teens still be into Dazzler? And I'm like, here's the thing. 
Kylie Minogue is how I would describe her career, but I think the way that she operates in the Marvel Universe is as someone like Britney Spears or Kelly Clarkson, where like they're very nostalgic for people in their 30s now, let's say. But if you're a young person and they do a new song that has a feature from some young artist, you're going to get crazy excited about it. Oh, here's Britney and she's doing a song with Tinashe, like Gen Z is paying attention. She's always doing stuff like so. The new Dazzler single featuring Lizzo was an extremely funny. Like Vita just got that, you know what I mean? Because it was like, first of all, it's Dazzler bringing in an artist who's hot with young people. Also, it gets at the exact crossover market kind of thing that we're talking about, right? Right. It's like Dazzler bringing in a black artist who does sometimes do disco inspired stuff. Right. Who is big into body positivity and gay rights and etc because that's the kind of artist dazzler now would be yeah i said about five years ago when people were saying who should play dazzler i was like have kesha play dazzler like because it's that specific i'm aiming for this gay audience i think that she also does the thing right down to that tan in the outback era but that thing (laughs) with the, the ariana grande type thing where she surrounds herself with It makes sense to me that she would surround herself with black talent because she would understand, like Ariana, or like Robin, who's always talking about this. Yeah, Robin was the other name I was going to throw out there. The thing about, like, Robin, I think her music sounds like Dazzler music, but I think Robin is too indie and cool for Dazzler to be like Robin. Like, yeah. Kylie's a better fit, yeah. Kylie's a better fit. Like, I love Kylie, but Kylie's like a mainstream artist. I think Robin is a little too out there. Dazzler would be like, I love this, but I could never make it. You know what I mean? (laughs) But in the same way, I think Dazzler is the kind of person who would be like, obviously, I'm so influenced by black music. She would like get it. Like Dazzler has that vibe, even though she is the white face on the record. Yeah. I would like to think that she has like a team of black songwriters who are getting paid out the ass. Like that was what I would hope, at least for Dazzler's team. I would hope that too. Yeah. Yeah. be nice to see more of that whenever dazzler gets a a solo again that will never happen as long as we live but uh it would yeah be cute. I, man i don't know can you imagine can you imagine the dazzler solo i mean the thing about dazzler that's interesting is after claremont kind of rescued the character the 90s writers just had no interest in her yeah she got shuffled off to buffalo for like 15 years yeah it's like nobody plucked her from obscurity and this is something i talk about with like other friends of mine, some of whom are other comics writers, it's like, you know, like, every character needs stewards, you know? Yeah. You need someone to give a shit. Yeah, like, I I talk about Black Panther a lot because of, you know, having written him. But, like, people forget now that the character is a household name. There was a good 10, 12, 15 years. He was nowhere. I would say more. Yeah. I would say there was about 30 years where Black Panther was nowhere. Because outside of the Christopher Priest stuff that people critically love, but I wouldn't say it was like a gigantic hit. It wasn't a hit. It wasn't a hit. You know? I was there. I was buying it in real time. It was not a hit. The only time before the Marvel Cinematic Universe that Black Panther was at all a big character, really, was when they did that gimmick and had him marry Storm in 2006 with Reggie Hudlin. And the thing about that is the book sold because people were speculating. Like, it was a speculator's market. It was like, this wedding issue is going to be big or whatever. But nobody liked it. That was not a particularly popular popular book like i'm not saying it didn't sell but critically right it was not right 
And personally, as a Storm fan, I have had this vague vendetta against Black Panther for years because I felt like Storm's whole character arc got fucked up by them dragging her off to Wakanda to be a supporting character in Black Panther's book instead of the main character in X-Men where she had been so central. Yeah. But yeah, it's kind of fascinating. I think a lot of people listening to this podcast who are younger or who are newer to comics don't understand the degree to which the Avengers were nowhere Yeah, until very recently. Yeah, very, very recently. The X-Men and Spider-Man were the only Marvel characters people particularly cared about for many, right. many, many, many right. years. Man, have you done anything on Teen Titans X-Men yet? I haven't, but I love Teen Titans X-Men. Oh, I might come back for that. You should come back for that. It's a crazy issue. I don't know how I'm going to read it. I have it in trade. What's, what trade is it in? It's an old, old trade. I'll find it. I'll find it for you. I'll let you know. Okay. All right. But yeah, no, the X-Men were it. And so again, going back to Dazzler, nobody was being like, you know what would be fun? You know what would be cool? Like, it's funny. One of the things I've done recently is um, co-host a podcast, Marvel's a Classified with Lorraine Sink. Mm-hmm. We look at the people, places, and events that kind of inform Marvel storylines. We did an episode on fandom, and we talked to Joe Duffy, who was an iconic writer and editor at marvel yeah like in the 70s and 80s and she starts out as a fan and we had her read a fan letter that she wrote for an issue of iron fist that featured uh misty knight and colleen wing love the daughters of the dragon i'm a big fan right so do i i still need them to put that out somewhere uh somehow um into that adaptation but anyway I want, yeah yeah no they'll make that work they have the rights to the characters back now and they cast great actors in those roles in the netflix yes. shows so yes they really did Get Jessica Hamwick and Simone Missick to yeah. do their own show. Yeah. They were so good. Be amazing. I'm a big Missy Nighthead because I first encountered Missy Nighthead. This is the thing Claremont always did. If Claremont loves a character, they are going to show up in the X-Men when Everywhere. he's writing the X-Men. Yes. So yes. Misty was Jean's roommate right. for a minute. And Colleen was Scott's love interest when he thought Jean was dead for that hot minute after they all get separated in Antarctica. So yeah. I knew who those characters were. And I even read some Iron Fist and Power Man, which was like way outside my... Yeah. But I was like, what are Misty and Colleen up to? They're great, you know? He was very, very good at that. In this Joe Duffy letter, she talks about how like Chris Claremont writes great women, which is hilarious, but true, right? He was staking out that territory even before he was on the X-Men. Yes. You know? It's his fascination always from his earliest stuff. Is right. like, how can I make this female character the most important and powerful character in the book? And he clearly does that with Dazzler. You know, Dazzler's arc in terms of how she uses her powers and how she conceptualizes herself is the most character development she's ever gotten. Ever. And it's not that long. That's what's wild no, to think about. Right. Is it's like yeah. she joins the X-Men in what, 85? I want to say. Something like that. Yeah. And she's out by Siege Perilous in 89. Yeah. So damn. it's a very quick and now it was double shipping at that point. So it's a right. lot of issues. Yeah. But when I look at it, I mean, this is why people always my big thing on this podcast is like a running joke is that Madeline Pryor is my obsession. I live and die for her. I would go to the ends of the earth for her. I love her. such a mess. Hot mess. Yeah, but it's like, people try to ask me, they're like, okay, but she's just been like an evil demon lady now since 1989. I'm like, I recognize that. However- All the stuff that happened before, yeah. Yeah, I'm like, from 1982 to 1988, there is an incredible, and honestly, all the way through Inferno, it's an incredible, incredible arc. And I'm just like, you can fix that character. And I feel the same way about Dazzler. Dazzler is a character who has, from 
the later part of her solo book, which is honestly pretty good, all of yeah. the stuff with her dad and once Lois comes in, her sister, all yes. of that crazy yeah. stuff, her long lost sister she never knew about, who then disappeared for about 40 years until they brought her back for Necrotia. That stuff is pretty good. And then all of the Claremont X-Men stuff she's in is great. In the 90s, it felt like she didn't have a champion. And like you said, Black Panther is a great example. Up until the movie made Black Panther one of the A-list superheroes on Earth, Black Panther only came back when there was a creator, usually a Black creator, yeah. who gave a shit. And that's one of the things I always say about the Black Panther's publishing history is like, every time somebody Black touches the character, the possibility for his space for him expands exponentially. So yeah. Billy Graham is an early artist, um, a Black artist in Marvel. When he's drawing Jungle Action in like 78, 79... Those pages are amazing. Beautiful. And he's very much coming from like a black is beautiful perspective. And he's drawing like these beautiful afros and dashikis yeah. and like whatnot. Like you can tell he gives In a, a way shit. you'd never seen in a comic, right. really. Jack Kirby yeah. wasn't drawing no dashikis, you know, like uh, uh, <laughs> no offense to the king, but he wasn't. No, he wasn't. He would never claim he was, you know. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is creating Black Panther in the first place was a... Okay, I did a thing. We're trying this, yes, you know. Yeah, but he yeah. he would never argue that he was like on the front lines of black representation in comics. I don't right. think he was arrogant and I think, that way. I think you know? again, in a in a much more limited way, you can see the same thing with Dazzler, right? So like, I think you know it was probably fair to to call Claremont a feminist, right? Yeah, certainly he was a supporter of the women's lib movement, as sure. they would call it sure. then. Yes. The Carol Danvers character is all about that. I mean, right, that's exactly. the whole exactly. And he, again, he's he's somebody who took Carol and was like, "No, I'm making no, her I'm going to make this character a star." And right. she's Ms. Marvel because Ms. is an important political right, thing right, right now, and like it was a thing. And literally made her a star. Literally made her into binary. Yes, literally a star. I miss binary. I think that's her coolest form. I've always felt that way. That costume was amazing. That yeah. costume is amazing. The power signature is so cool. I love that version of the character. And also, she wasn't a cop. And unfortunately, ever since Carol came back, she's been a yeah. weird cop. Yeah. So yeah, that's... Yeah. Uh, should have left her out in space where she was a fun pirate. But, you know, to that point about, like, people with certain lived experiences tapping into that energy to kind of, like, reinvigorate characters. Like, there's that latter day, the Dazzler X song, one, one shot. What did you think of that that Mags Visaggio did? I liked it. You know, like, it was very, like, here's a metaphor. Yeah, I think... My issue with it is just like it's tied up in all the inhuman stuff that I just don't care for. Yes, that that was that was a very messy, sloppy period. In that story, having like mutant extremists attack inhumans and Dazzler has well, to be like, know, we're all the same to like mutant and inhuman. I just I don't know. It felt forced to me metaphorically. So here's the thing that I like that it explored. We have seen that, you know. People on the fringes of society who are marginalized by the overall kind of systemic power structure do turn on each other and can't turn on each other. So I thought that was an interesting idea to explore. I just find the idea of inhumans as marginalized to be very out of step with what the inhumans are. I mean, agreed. And it felt very motivated by just trying to make them replace the X-Men. And to me, X-Song feels like that writ large. Now, I will say, I think that Visaggio's characterization of Dazzler is spot on. Because I do think that that is who Dazzler is. It's just the inhumans of it all. Yeah. Where I'm like, uh, but Dazzler has always, it's interesting particularly because of her long history with Hank McCoy. Yes. Oh, we have to get into Beauty and the Beast. Oh, we will get into that as soon as we get back from the character file as like a story worth discussing, right? But um, as someone who has been tied up with Hank a lot in 
the Beast episode with Spencer Ackerman, we went over sort of how Beast from the 60s onward is the ultimate self-hating assimilationist mutant. Yeah. He wants to be human. He wants to be an Avenger. He wants that. He doesn't want this X-Men thing where he's a freak. That is his right. least favorite thing in the world. And that's now turned on Krakoa into him using mutant identity to become essentially... The feds. Right, yeah. 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 <laughs> like the feds, because he can. Dazzler has always been an interesting character because... She's somewhere in that spectrum with Beast and Havoc and Polaris, where they all want to escape right. from the mutant thing. This is not my destiny. This is not my destiny, and being an X-Man is not really what I want. But whereas with Havoc and Polaris, it's out of the desire to be normal. Yeah. And with Beast, it's out of a desire to be an Avenger, a human superhero, to be a cop. Like He doesn't want to be in this marginalized position. He wants to be like... Captain America or Wonder Man and Iron Man and all these guys where no one cares and they are allowed to be authorities and beloved. Dazzler wants to be beloved in the same way, but it's interesting. She's more like Kitty, actually, in a lot of ways. She refuses to segregate herself. That's what she doesn't like. And I'm very interested to see where she goes in the Krakoa era. I'm hoping she'll be on the X-Men team. She seems obvious as someone who would win a popular vote. Yeah. And... I think she is an ambassadorial character. She's someone who's always interested in talking to humans and being among humans. If I'm Cyclops and Jean and I'm thinking, who will be good at communicating to people? Krakoa is separatist for our own protection, but we're not supremacist. Right. Or or isolationist. Yeah, we're not a threat. We're in the world still. Then Dazzler is the obvious choice, much like Kate Pride on the Marauders makes perfect sense. Emma is sending her out there to be that person. And much as I think Storm is going to do that in some other way, we don't quite know yet, but it seems they're setting her up for something. Those are three characters who have always been good at navigating that human-mutant divide without forsaking mutantdom right the way that beast kind of did and does a lot of poor hank listen i think it's one of the most fascinating arcs in the history of the x-men over a long period i also think he's just unsalvageably terrible at this point and i don't know what you can do and fabian niciesa in his episode was like for my part in that i am very sorry like i helped set him by accident on this path because he wrote the arc with threnody where Beast gives Threnody to Mr. Sinister for, like, info on the legacy virus. Anyway, point is, Dazzler is a character who, even if she's hesitant about mutancy as an identity that she has to claim, she is always proud to proclaim it and wants to make people understand it. And so her role on Krakoa is something I think could be interesting because there need to be people who still want to do that if the project is going to succeed, I think. You know, Connor, what you're talking about reminds me of, like, the whole reason we're talking about Dazzler in the first place. You know, we started talking, and, you know, my instinct, for better or worse, is always to try and center black characters and creators in my conversations when I'm talking about, you know, yeah. co- comics making in a meta perspective. But, like, the amount of black mutants that, like, you can call A-listers, like, it's so small. There's almost none. There's almost none. Well, there's Bishop, who arguably isn't black, right? So there's that whole complicated thing, because he's Australian Aboriginal, so that's a complicated... I think they should pull a storm with him and have one of his parents be African, and that's a very simple retcon. Not that I'm suggesting it's 
a bad thing that he's Australian Aboriginal, but it's very clear that a lot of writers didn't really understand the difference. He's, he's red as black. He's red as black and written as black most of the time. So I think that they should make him mixed in that. that I think that would be smart to do. Right. Especially since they've always implied that he was, because they always implied that he's somehow related to Storm in the future. So, like, you know. Again, to talk about another character with Aboriginal roots, Manifold. Manifold. They're doing such a great job. But he's affirmatively not, like, African black, right? Right. He's, like, affirmatively Aboriginal. Yeah. It's like Storm is it, obviously, but I actually think that since the Black Panther marriage, she went from the biggest female character at Marvel to a lower tier character. It was the combo of she was in these Avengers books as a supporting character and the movie rights weren't with Disney, so all the X-Men got downplayed. Right. And Carol kind of replaced her as Marvel's premier superheroine which is complicated in a whole number of ways that i mean as a monica rambo head myself i feel a lot of ways about yes, the ascent uh, of carol danvers monica is my favorite avenger so i'm very very excited about the possibilities that lie ahead the rambo renaissance that's been happening yeah shout outs to al ewing and everything he did on that character shout outs to al ewing he really rescued that character from the abyss also, like, Tiana Paris, who was one of my top picks to play that character, when people would bandy about, like, who, this was when she was on Mad Men, or when I was like, she's so good. Her and Shanola Hampton were, like, the two TV actresses wow. where I was like, they would be so good. That's a deep cut. Here's the thing, I said it once on Twitter, and Shanola Hampton faved it, and I was like, I am manifesting this now, but um, I think she's a little older than they wanted to go. They keep skewing younger with these characters. Right. But Shanola Hampton had the natural hair, she was dark-skinned, like, that was, it was like, there are not that many actresses in, I mean, yeah. I don't have to tell you this, you know, yeah. so... Tiana Paris was someone else who, when I saw, because on Mad Men, she wore a wig, obviously, but when I saw her on the red carpet and she had this beautiful right. natural hairstyle, I was like, oh, Four she would be a perfect Monica yeah. Rambo. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Apparently, much like I once shouted out Chanel Hampton, Tiana Paris became aware of Monica Rambo as a character because a fan was like, this would be a great actress for this character. And so then she like sent that to her agent. They called Disney or whatever. Like, hey, do you plan on doing anything with this character? You know, so... Fans, I almost, I tried so hard. I tried to get Oliver Jackson Cohen as Moon Knight because he's Egyptian Jewish. Oh, wow. Which would be perfect. But um, apparently it's going to be Oscar Isaac. And I was upset at first because like, could we finally cast a Jewish actor as one of these characters? But then it turns out Oscar Isaac is like, un Jewish, which like, you know, I'll take it. <laughs> okay. I did think Egyptian Jewish Oliver Jackson Cohen would fix so much of the problems with Moon Knight, which is that he's like this very prominent Jewish superhero, except all his stuff is ancient Egyptian, which doesn't make any sense. No, it's, uh, yeah. Because <laughs> the Jewish thing was a retcon, as it usually is. So yeah. it's all, you know, mess on mess, mess on Oscar mess. Oscar Isaac does have the full moon, though. You know, he does. He does. I just wanted to make that, d- that dad joke. Sorry. Does. The fact that he was on the shortlist for Doctor Strange will torture me to the end of my life because he's my ideal Doctor Strange. That's why I'm kind of like. great. Yeah. Oof. In any case. So, yeah, in terms of like A list black characters, that is the thing. Dazzler would have been the first black female superhero to have a solo book. Right. By far. By a long time. By a long shot. DC tried to do it with Vixen, but it didn't yeah. happen. It got canceled. Well, you know what's funny? Vixen and Dazzler to me are characters that kind of occupy the same possibility space. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, you know, Vixen is just screaming for a TV show. She's a model? An African model? She was an African model. It was the height of Iman right before Naomi Campbell Jet then became all a supermodel. Yeah. 
it's right there for you. That's like a cheesy 1980s superhero show waiting to happen. Waiting to happen. And Dazzler, similarly, where is the... I mean, now that they have the rights back, and I will say one of the things about WandaVision, I was like, the musical numbers in this are so fun. Yeah. Disney has such musical yeah. talent. I mean, just yeah. get the Lopez's back and then hire some disco musicians. Hire fucking Nile Rodgers to make yeah. Dazzler songs. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> come on. I bet you could get Giorgio Moroder, frankly. He would think that was fun. He's just like old hanging out in Ibiza or whatever. He's not busy. But again, the setup is right there. She's, the setup's right she's there. She's on tour. She's going to different places. It's Hannah Montana. Like, yeah. it's just like, you know, it's very easy to do. It's Gem. Yeah. I mean, yes. Gem is just exactly. a Dazzler ripoff. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Right Speak down to the hologram technology. Yes. Yes. And the face makeup. Like, yeah. Gem literally is just off-brand Dazzler. Yeah. The ripoff is outrageous. I mean, I like Gem, but Gem is just Dazzler. And it's like, yeah. okay, all right, fine. I think it would be the best possible way to intro the mutants. I've thought about this, like, because, I mean, you have to figure out how you make the mutants exist, obviously, which is like, they have to figure that out because you can't just have them suddenly, you have to figure a way to make it make sense. But once you do, you know, on the Rogue episode, Cass Morris was like, they should intro the Brotherhood. They should be enemies for Carol. You bring in like Mystique and Destiny and Rogue. That I think would be cute. Another thing that would be cute, though, is... Who else did they fight all the time? Dazzler. Yeah. So what you do is you bring in a Dazzler show that's about Dazzler outing herself as a mutant, the way it affects her career, or being outed. I think you should have her out herself, though. I do think that's important to the character. To own it. For her to be like, all right, you hate mutants? Guess what? I'm at the top of the charts, and I'm a mutant. Like, I think that's an important... She kind of does the coming out of the closet thing. And this is around when... Claremont very cleverly transitioned the X-Men from a race, the race metaphor he initially was working with in stories like God Loves, Man Kills, creates these awkward moments where it's like a white girl telling black people about racism. And you're like, "Mm." and I think Claremont quickly realized this isn't quite hitting right. And he switched it. And this had to do also with changing social mores around gay people, but he made it much more about... A metaphor for the gay rights. Gay rights, and a metaphor for, like, all these marginalized sexualities and things like that. He was always trying to push in stuff like that, and he clearly... I don't know what Chris Claremont's personal life is like. I have no idea. But it seems to me like he was keyed into the queer community in New York at that time, which was definitely called the gay community at that time. But, like, the club scene the bdsm scene i was gonna say there's so much kink in the x-men during his yeah. era there are like seven different times that rachel summers is referred to as rough trade in 80s x-men which is just like a very spe- that's chris claremont having friends down the piers like that's what that is you know what but, i mean like yeah. so i think dazzler similarly dazzler is a character where like like i said like i came up in the nightlife i was in clubs from the age of 18 she is a character who feels like a Kylie Minogue, like one of those women. Dazzler, unlike most X-Men, particularly Chris Claremont characters, and in part maybe this is because he didn't create her, feels astoundingly heterosexual to me. Whereas like most X-Men are at least a Kinsey 3, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> and Dazzler is painfully heterosexual, but in that Kylie Minogue kind of way, she's like, hello, I'm a straight white woman, but I love gays and I love minorities and we're all here and we're a family and I'm going to like lead the parade. Like she's that character. And so Claremont, I think, saw something there because for whatever reason, he is always, it seems to me, felt drawn to that community and to the way that that community forges a found family 
together. Yeah, the found family is a whole thing with X Men, right? It you is know? like it's the whole thing, really. You know, so, it, and again with Dazzler, it makes sense. But I think what's really interesting is that like there's always this push and pull with Dazzler, and it's been there from the beginning, her solo series. But it's like the allure of fame, right? Yeah. But also like again needing to stay in the closet as a mutant, and there's this exquisite tension there that he really he really minds so well. There's that issue during his run where they're in Scotland. They're like teams split up because half of them are hurt after the Marauders have attacked yes. them. And they're in Scotland. And Dash was like, I hate this training. I don't even know if I want to do this. I'm going to go out to like a, a pub and, and get shit faced <laughs> and sing. And the juggernaut blows by yes. in a car. And she chases them down solo, doesn't call for help. No. And like they have this big fight. And, you know, she's throwing her big guns at him, right? Like, yeah, because she's fucking strong. Yeah, photon blasts and whatnot. And but she like passes out. He thinks she. He thinks he's killed her. But before that, he's like, "I'm a huge fan." Yes, and that's what I love is because it also that ties into Chris Claremont presenting the Juggernaut as gay, which I think is very clear in the yes. Juggernaut and Black Tom stories yes. from yes. 1975 yeah. on. Yeah. Why are you all always together again? Like, what is this, right? Yeah. Much like Mystique and Destiny, bad guy Pyro is also a character who's very clearly gay in the 80s. He's a romance novelist with a female pen name, and he wears little ascots. So Claremont was allowed to play more aggressively with sexuality with those characters, I think. And Juggernaut, it's played in the comic like he has a crush on her. But if you're thinking about it in a like Jim Shooter wouldn't let anybody be gay kind of way, that story is about the Juggernaut is a huge Dazzler fan, which is code for a homosexual. Dazzler attacks him to try and prove that she's like a powerful X-Man still. He thinks he's killed Dazzler. Can you imagine? It's 1988 or whatever. Yeah. And you're a gay man who accidentally killed Kylie Minogue. Right. The horror. The horror. And I like it because when it comes back around again in New Excalibur, which is not a book I'm crazy about, but Juggernaut's obsessed with Dazzler is a funny beat to bring back. Right. You know? I mean, again, part of it is like the the straight-centric interpretation is that here's this big tough guy, you know, like right. nothing can hurt him, but he loves- But he loves dance music. Right. And it's like, yeah, he's a big tough guy who made a pact with a demon to become as strong as he could be because quietly he's a very, very conflicted gay man whose like masculinity is in crisis at all times. And what he really wants to do is dance with Black Tom in their apartment to the new Dazzler record. And I love that for them. <laughs> I hope Dazzler sings at their wedding. You know, but again, it's like one of the things that's interesting about Dazzler is like the subtext is the text for her, you know? Yes. And not just with the mutant stuff. It's also like fame, you know, like, yeah, she's a fame thirsty chick. She wants to be famous. And what's fun about her is it ties into her like intrinsic heroic spirit. There are several times when a character, usually a man who wants to have sex with her, will be like, I can make you a star. And she's like, I don't want you to make me a star. I'm going to become a star because I deserve it. And it's this very rosy view of show business, but right. it ties into the fact that she is the character who intrinsically is drawn to being a superhero, even though she doesn't want to be, because she is that person. She has that noble spirit. Well, that's a perfect segue to the dark side of show business, which has been one aspect that I think these really wild, provocative Dazzler stories that have happened throughout the years are just about, yeah, uh, I want to be famous above anything else. Yeah. We talked a little bit about Beauty and the Beast, but it's this wild miniseries. Hold that thought, because I think right now, for the newer 
fans who are not up on Allie Blair's full marvelous history as the Disco Dazzler, I am going to now pause us for the Cerebro character file on Allison Blair. We will go through Dazzler's entire publication history from the Dark Phoenix saga up to the present, and then we will come right back for more with Evan Narcisse, and we will go into our favorite and least favorite Dazzler storylines, beginning with the insane miniseries Beauty and the Beast. We'll be right back. X-Men, X-Men. Allison Blair, usually called Allie and best known as the Dazzler, is a star who has never quite hit the big time. Created by Jim Shooter, Tom DeFalco, and John Romita Jr., she was initially presented as a solo heroine, connected to the X-Men only because she was also a mutant. After her eponymous series came to a close in 1986, she became integral to the final years of Chris Claremont's iconic run on Uncanny X-Men. Though used sparingly by writers to follow, she has remained a popular character beloved by fans. The exact details of Dazzler's creation remain murky, and various sources contradict one another. Jim Shooter claims the idea to create a disco singer superhero originated in-house. Whatever the case may be, the Disco Queen, or as she was quickly renamed, the Dazzler, became part of a cross-promotional deal between Marvel and Casablanca Records. Initially designed by John Romita Jr. as a black woman modeled after disco icon Grace Jones, she was redesigned into a strawberry blonde white woman before her debut in 1980's X-Men 130. The actress Bo Derek became attached to the character, and record executive Neil Bogart wanted to use a Dazzler motion picture to promote some of the stars he represented. Jim Shooter's film treatment, which is worth a read because it's insane, featured roles for Cher, Donna Summer, Rodney Dangerfield, Kiss, yes, the entire band, and all of the village people, not to mention Spider-Man and the Avengers. It's a fascinating what might have been. This ambitious treatment was scrapped in favor of a concept by Leslie Stevens, creator of The Outer Limits, but the film deal collapsed when Bo Derek insisted on having her husband, John Derek, direct the picture. Subsequent attempts to shop the Stevens concept with Daryl Hannah failed to secure funding. In the meanwhile, as all this was happening, the Disco Dazzler first appears in the famous Dark Phoenix saga, where she's first introduced on the page by Chris Claremont and John Byrne. An up-and-coming young singer still booking gigs at nightclubs, Dazzler has the mutant power to transmute sound into light. She uses this ability to create astonishing laser light shows at her concerts. Sensed by Cerebro, Professor Xavier's mutant-detecting computer, Dazzler is approached by both the X-Men and agents of the Hellfire Club. She helps the X-Men rescue their teammates from Emma Frost, the Hellfire Club's White Queen, but turns down the offer to join the team. She's not interested in being a superhero, only in being a performer. The following year, Dazzler debuts in her own eponymous solo series, written by Tom DeFalco. Alison Blair is introduced as a lifelong aspiring singer and recent college graduate. Her powers manifested during a high school talent show that was attacked by a biker gang, and she suppressed them out of fear. After graduating cum laude with a pre-law degree from a prestigious university, Allie shocks her controlling lawyer father, Carter Blair, by refusing to attend the law school he has selected for her, instead deciding to strike out on her own and start a singing career. After her initial adventure with the X-Men, Dazzler is tapped by Avenger Hank McCoy, the X-Men's ally and former teammate Beast, when he sees an ad in the newspaper looking for a new singer at the hottest club in town. Allie attends the audition and competes against Amora the Enchantress, a wicked Asgardian goddess. Allie is victorious, leading the Enchantress to attack her big concert at the club. In front of her assembled superhero friends, Allie defeats Enchantress, and while the club is wrecked in the fight, to onlookers it seems like a choreographed stage show. Talent manager Harry Osgood signs Allie as a client on the strength of this supposed performance. Allie's early adventures mostly involve Harry booking her a gig, which is then interrupted by the Hulk or Doctor Doom or what have you. She dates the Human Torch briefly, but finds his bravado off-putting. 
When Harry's kidnapped, Allie is forced to use her powers in front of him. He's not afraid and suggests that revealing her status as a mutant might actually be an incredible publicity stunt. But when Allie asks him to keep it a secret, he agrees. When the telepathic heroine Moondragon summons possible recruits for the Avengers, Allie is one of those who answer the call, but she explains she has no interest in being a superhero and simply wants to pursue her music career. Blackmailed by government agents into collaborating with Project Pegasus, a scientific study of superhuman powers, Allie is tricked by the supervillain Claw, a man made of pure solid sound, into freeing him from imprisonment in the Pegasus facility. While defending herself and her new friend, the hero Quasar, Allie accidentally absorbs Claw entirely with her mutant power. He's apparently killed, but Allie's powers are boosted significantly, and she blasts her way out of Project Pegasus. She's then taken by the cosmic entity Galactus, devourer of worlds, and made into his temporary herald so that she can rescue his missing herald, Terax. When she returns to Earth, Allie finds that Project Pegasus has framed her for the supposed murder of Claw. After Quasar testifies on her behalf, Allie is cleared of all charges. She begins dating her lawyer, Ken Barnett. Finding success as the opening act for popular musician Bruce Harris, Allie is suddenly abducted to Asgard, where Amora the Enchantress, who's sworn vengeance, claims she cheated in their earlier contest. Odin the Allfather supervises a new competition, and, to Amora's horror, Allie is declared the finest singer in Midgard and Asgard alike. Dazzler's invited to join the Avengers once again after the Wasp decides the team doesn't have enough women. Allie again turns the offer down. Shortly thereafter, back in her solo book, she's seduced by Warren Worthington III, the former X-Man Angel, despite initially thinking him a jackass. When Warren puts her in danger due to his superheroic instincts, she rejects him in favor of her boyfriend Ken, and Warren vows to find Allie's long-lost mother in an effort to win her back. When Allie's attacked by the absorbing man, Crusher Creel, she channels the destructive voice of Black Bolt, King of the Inhumans, to achieve a level of power greater than ever before. Warren convinces Allie to visit her father, whom she hasn't seen since their fight at her graduation. He admits to her that he tried to put a stop to Allie's ambitions in show business because her mother Catherine abandoned the family when Allie was a toddler in order to pursue her own singing career. Allie, who has always longed for her mother, is devastated to learn this, but rallies for an incredible opportunity, a charity concert at Carnegie Hall. Her friend Vanessa approaches her with some surprising news. Vanessa's singing teacher, Barbara London, is actually Catherine Blair. After leaving Allie's father, Catherine married a man named Nick Brown, who was abusive. She eventually fled with their child, a girl named Lois, and assumed a new identity as Barbara London. Barbara is afraid to see the daughter she abandoned after all these years, but promises to attend the concert. After Allie sings a special song just for her mother, she and her parents have a healing conversation backstage. She then meets her half-sister, Lois London, while Lois is on break from college. With her music career soaring to new heights, Allie feels her boyfriend Ken is ignoring her in favor of his legal career. She begins flirting with Warren again and winds up trapped between him and the mutant terrorists Mystique and Destiny, along with their daughter Rogue. Rogue has been a fan of Allie's music, but after discovering Allie's a powerful mutant with control over her gift, Rogue becomes her bitter rival. Around this time, Lois is attacked on the street by a homeless man. She reacts instinctively to defend herself and suddenly manifests a mutant power of her own, the ability to kill with a touch. After slaying her attacker in self-defense, Lois wants to go to the police, but Allie doesn't think they'll be kind to a mutant. The sisters decide to travel to Los Angeles, with Allie wearing a brunette wig as a disguise, but find themselves blackmailed with evidence of Lois's accidental killing. The blackmailer tries to force them to kill a man who turns out to be Nick Brown, Lois's estranged father. After clearing everything up and getting the charges against Lois dropped, Allie decides to start working with Nick, who is a wealthy showbiz executive in L.A., in order to pursue acting. 
After Nick admits he'd be happy to hire men to attack Allie just to drum up publicity, Allie leaves in disgust. But Lois decides to stay with her father, leaving Allie hurt and feeling betrayed. Not long afterward, in 1984's Marvel graphic novel 12, Dazzler the Movie, written by Jim Shooter, washed-up Sinatra wannabe Roman Nekabo, who's been courting Allie after an introduction from Nick, leaks Allie's mutant status to the press in order to garner excitement about a movie he and Allie are doing together. He convinces her to demonstrate her abilities as a publicity stunt, but it backfires. Her awesome power terrifies the assembled audience, and her career is left in ruins. Allie completes the movie, which is meant as a statement for mutant rights. But when the producer refuses to release it unless Allie becomes his sexual servant, Allie burns the only copy of the film herself. Dazzer then stars in Beauty and the Beast, a four-issue miniseries written by Anne Nesenti. Down and out, Allie's hired to work at a mutant circus and secretly drugged to make her powers unstable. She meets up with her old acquaintance Hank McCoy, and the two fall in love, only to be influenced by the drugs into participating in a superhuman gladiatorial contest. Allie almost kills Hank, but remembers their romance and breaks free of the drug's influence. After this mini concludes, Allie takes a job as a backup singer with mutant musician Lila Cheney's band, and helps the new mutants put a stop to the gladiatorial arena by uncovering its true master, the evil entity called the Shadow King. Deciding she needs to help the mutant cause, and without much of a career anymore to distract her, Allie visits the X-Men and begins training in the use of her mutant powers. She still resists joining the team, but appreciates their help especially the extra effort made by Wolverine and Colossus, who attack her in public and force her to defend herself to show what she's learned. The nigh-omnipotent cosmic being called the Beyonder falls in love with Allie and briefly turns her into an entity like himself, but she rejects the power. Don't worry about it. In the final arc of her solo series, Dazzler battles a pair of supervillains called Dust and Silence. Dust possesses Allie's father, Carter, who is killed as his body burns out due to Dust's use of it. Allie defeats the evil duo, but is believed dead herself by the authorities. Deciding to take the opportunity to keep a low profile, Allie begins wearing a brunette wig and returns to Lila Cheney's band. She tours with them as a backup singer and keyboardist until 1987's Uncanny X-Men 213, where she's targeted by the psychic entity Malice, leader of the Marauders. Malice possesses Allie and influences her into competition with Lila, who calls the X-Men for advice. After battling Malice until she flees, the X-Men tell Allie about the mutant massacre in which the mutant community called the Morlocks were slaughtered by the Marauders. Fearing for her own safety and wanting to help people like herself, Allie decides to finally join the X-Men. She tries to prove herself by battling the Juggernaut, who turns out to be a huge Dazzler fan. He's devastated when he believes he's killed her in their fight, and he gives her a noble burial. She's actually alive, though, and manages to escape being buried alive thanks to a little telepathic assistance from her teammate Betsy Braddock, a.k.a. Psylocke. Soon after this, Allie dies alongside the other X-Men in the 1988 franchise-wide event Fall of the Mutants. After sacrificing their lives to defeat the cosmic being called the Adversary, the X-Men are secretly resurrected by the Omniversal Guardian, Roma. Roma also gives them the Siege Perilous, a mystical relic that allows anyone to pass through a portal and be judged, reborn with no memories, to a new life. Deciding to start acting undercover, the X-Men allow the world to believe they're dead and begin operating out of the Australian Outback, seizing the headquarters of their enemies, the Reavers, a group of evil cyborgs. Allie gets a killer tan in the Outback. She and her teammate Rogue have lingering tension from Rogue's days as a supervillain and begin fighting for the attention of their teammate Longshot, an alien from Mojo World, a dimension ruled by television. Don't worry about it. Dazzler and Longshot are attracted to one another, and they finally get together as a couple while influenced by the demons of Limbo in the 1989 franchise-wide event Inferno. When she looks into the Siege Perilous with her light powers, Allie is horrified to discover that in every possible future it seems she dies a violent death. 
She's then guilt-stricken after her own laser blast sends Rogue through the Siege Perilous during a battle against the Super Sentinel Nimrod, even though Rogue told her to do it. Later, when the team is attacked by the Reavers, Psylocke tells them she's foreseen that they will die if they don't escape. Allie is convinced to enter the Siege Perilous, and washes ashore amnesiac on Malibu Beach. She's found by Guido Caracella, aka Strong Guy, Lila Cheney's bodyguard. Lila's band tells Allie about her past, but she doesn't remember any of it. She goes out dancing and meets a man who has a copy of the film she thought she'd destroyed in Dazzler the movie. The film is finally released, and Allie becomes a star again. She's kidnapped from the premiere by the producer who had tried to blackmail her way back when, but she heals some of his anger with a soothing light show. With the departure of Chris Claremont from the X-Men franchise, Dazzler is quickly ridden out. Longshot approaches her and Lila for help, as he's being hunted by the sorceress Spiral and other agents of Mojo World. Lila accidentally teleports them all to the Mojoverse, and while Allie can't remember him, she trusts Longshot and believes in the love they apparently once shared. Fighting alongside him in an effort to liberate Mojo World from the rule of its media-obsessed despot, Mojo, Allie finds her memories beginning to return. Longshot and Dazzler's rebellion eventually unseats Mojo, and Professor Xavier senses that Allie is pregnant. Allie and Longshot marry and return to Mojo World. Dazzler returns three years later in 1995's X-Men 47. Jean Grey senses that Allie has lost the baby and chooses not to mention it. Allie adopts the X-Babies, toddler versions of the X-Men created by Mojo as part of a marketing scheme, and defends them against those in Mojo World who seek to destroy them now as a relic of Mojo's rule. In the 2001 franchise-wide event Eve of Destruction, Allie escapes from the Mojoverse after Mojo has recaptured power there. Longshot is missing and believed dead, and after helping the X-Men battle Magneto, Allie strikes off on her own rather than return to Mojo World. Resuming her show business career, Allie briefly hires Deadpool as a bodyguard. She returns to regular publication in Chris Claremont's New Excalibur in 2006. Stuck in a rut as something of a has-been, Allie finds herself wearing a long blonde wig to emulate the Dazzler of time gone by. She's feeling unfulfilled, and after a gig in London, she's attacked by the Shadow X, evil alternate reality versions of the original five X-Men. Don't worry about it. Killed by the evil Jean Grey, Allie shocks all her friends when she spontaneously resurrects herself from the dead about 90 minutes later. She joins Captain Britain and mutant government agent Pete Wisdom in forming a new iteration of Excalibur, the X-Men's British counterpart. She's joined on the team by the Juggernaut, her biggest fan, who has reformed from his villainous ways. Allie refuses to sign with a major record label again, deciding to make music for herself on her own terms. While serving with Excalibur, she's killed multiple times, but resurrects again and again, unsure of why she appears to be immortal. No tests are able to find an answer. In the 2007 miniseries X-Men Die by the Sword, Allie is reunited with Longshot, who has been hopping through dimensions with the team called the Exiles. This time it's Longshot who has amnesia, and he is completely unable to remember Allie. Despairing at finding her husband alive only to be forgotten by him, she briefly considers suicide, but manages to get a hold of herself and helps Excalibur and the Exiles defeat the threat that's brought them together. Longshot finally remembers her name, and the two kiss and decide to resume their relationship. Off-panel, Allie and Longshot break up again when his memories fail to return over time. Her career in Europe floundering, she decides to start over in San Francisco, where the X-Men have moved under new writer Matt Fraction in the wake of the Decimation, in which almost all mutants have been depowered worldwide. The return of Dazzler to the United States provokes a lot of press attention, and her career has a small renaissance. Allie ends up rejoining the X-Men, bonding with young member Pixie, who's a massive Dazzler fan. She grows close with gay teammate Northstar, obviously, and is then overjoyed by the return of her old friend Betsy Braddock, who had been dead for a while and then lost between dimensions. Don't worry about it. Eventually, Allie reunites with Longshot, whose memories have returned, and while the two decide to stay no-strings-attached, they resume an on-again-off-again romantic and sexual relationship. 
In the 2009 franchise-wide event Necrotia, Allie is shocked to discover her sister Lois operating as part of the villain Selene's inner circle. Now calling herself Mortis, Lois has become a supervillain after accidentally killing her father Nick. She resents Allie for leaving her behind to suffer Nick's abuse, even though that was Lois's own choice. And even after Selene's defeat, Mortis attempts to kill Dazzler by teaming up with Arcade and with Claw, Allie's old enemy. Allie manages to put Lois into a coma, and Betsy agrees to attempt rehabilitation with psychic therapy, warning Allie that it may take years to repair Lois's damaged mind. Allie fucks Wolverine around here, which, love that for them, honestly. She still sides with Cyclops during the 2011 event Schism, in which the X-Men divide into two factions behind Cyclops and Wolverine. Cyclops puts Allie in charge of a street team consisting of herself, Boom Boom, and Lifeguard, and it is honestly a homophobic crime that we never get to see this little squad operating on panel. Dazzler's then the protagonist of Greg Puck's 2012 relaunch of Extreme X-Men, which is really more of an Exiles book. She becomes the leader of an interdimensional team of X-Men on a quest to kill 10 evil versions of Charles Xavier, who threaten the multiverse. This book absolutely rules, and I encourage you to read it. Her team includes a gay version of Wolverine and a black version of Cyclops who she ends up dating. This book is just so much fun and sadly doesn't run for very long. After returning to Earth-616, Allie is approached by Maria Hill, director of S.H.I.E.L.D., to become a mutant liaison in the wake of Cyclops becoming a radical mutant freedom fighter allied with Magneto. Under writer Brian Michael Bendis, Allie briefly serves as an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. in an effort to improve human-mutant relations, but is targeted by Mystique, who views her as a traitor to the species for her collaboration with the human government. Mystique imprisons and replaces her, using Allie's body as a source of mutant growth hormone, an empowering drug Mystique sells to mutants depowered in the decimation. After she's rescued by Magneto, Allie joins up with Cyclops' rogue X-Men and, furious about what she's endured, for a time adopts a new goth-punk aesthetic. Allie eventually cuts a deal with Maria Hill to deliver Mystique into S.H.I.E.L.D. custody in exchange for the deletion of S.H.I.E.L.D.'s files on Cyclops and all his students. Though she's offered the opportunity to return to her job as an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., Allie instead briefly joins up with A-Force, an all-female superhero team. She reveals she has contracted M-Pox, the deadly disease caused when mutants are exposed to the inhuman Terrigen mist. And yada, 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 we aren't talking about Inhumans versus X-Men. Things to know. Allie's weird immortality from New Excalibur seems to prevent M-Pox from killing her. She's upset, though, when she witnesses it kill her alternate self from a world where she became the mighty Thor. And she teams up with Emma Frost to kick the shit out of Black Bolt in a very satisfying series of panels. Allie can't bring herself to hate all Inhumans, though, and particularly hopes to bridge the gap between mutants and everyday Inhumans who she doesn't blame for the actions of the royal family. In the Dazzler X-Song one-shot by Max Visaggio, Allie forms a new band called Lightbringer and tries to reason with anti-Inhuman mutant extremists. Anyway, Allie eventually joins up with a group of X-Men led by Havoc, only to discover that they aren't official X-Men and are technically classed as terrorists, which screws up the Dazzler brand yet again. In the 2019 soft reboot, House of X and Powers of Ten by Jonathan Hickman, Allie is one of countless mutants who join the new sovereign nation on the living island Krakoa. She and fellow mutant Siren have started a band together on the island, but what else lies in the future for the one-time disco queen has yet to be revealed. Solicits for X-Factor by Leah Williams and David Baldeon indicate that soon Allie will return to Mojo World to help rescue the mutant Mojoverse hybrid Shatterstar, her time-displaced son with Longshot, who she thought had died as an infant. X-Men! X-Men! And we're back to The Dazzler Show. That just reminded me, I liked in the House of M reality when she was essentially Oprah in the mutant world, <laughs> which again, like, would have made more sense if she had been allowed to be a black character as originally conceived. But the way that Bendis was like, if mutants ruled the world, Dazzler would obviously have become the biggest star on television because how would she not? Right. You right. know, she was ahead of the curve. 
Before we paused, you had just brought up Beauty and the Beast, the miniseries from before she joins the X-Men. Right. Which is a four-issue miniseries. Written by Innocenti. Yes, who I love. Drawn drawn by Donald Perlin, uh, from, from what I can remember. I think Donald Perlin? I think that's right. It's such a weird miniseries. Dazzler is the titular beauty. The Beast is, of course, Hank McCoy, who is at the time an Avenger. I remember I just stumbled on it. You know what it was? It was those crazy Bill Senkovich covers. Yeah, which are beautiful. They're just like, I need to read this. I'll read just about anything they slap a Senkovich cover on, honestly. I'm a mark. Yeah, it's the classic, you know, 1980s Marvel bait and switch for like something in the cover. We're showing you something in the cover that never happens in the actual issue. Right. So I got the series and, you know, I was an X-Men fan. I was a Dazzler fan. I was a Beast fan. So let me see what it's about. It's so weird. The basic premise is that like... Allie Blair is down and out, like post coming out as a mutant. Her career's in the toilet. She's in LA. Yeah. She has tried to make it as an actress now because they had to pivot her out of disco because they were like, what are we doing? Right? Yeah. The whole plot with her sister has already happened, which we'll get into because I love Lois. (laughs) She's a fun, weird character that has very few appearances. And those are some of my favorite bitches always. In, In the course of trying to become like, you know, a starlet in Hollywood, Dazzler falls in with these skeevy producer types, one of whom seems to be very heavily premised on Larry Flint. Mm-hmm. And she joins this underground nightclub circuit, which is actually becomes an underground gladiatorial ring. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's a very Anne concept in yes. that she takes something very real and normal and then just sort of puts it through a masculine filter and you're like what did i take before i started reading this book and i love innocenti so much me I think too she's me too one of the great unsung heroes of marvel comics and come on the pod the thing about this series that's amazing is that like you know honestly the two main characters are so like pathetic like bathetic you know in the kind of yeah. classical way there's bathos there's all this mm-hmm. sadness and desperation and yearning on Allison's part, she's like, I just want to be a star. I just want to belong. I want I want the adulation, the rush of the crowd and people saying my name. Like, she's hooked on that. And at this point, she thinks she's given it up forever by making the mistake of coming out. Right. As a mutant. Right. She's like, it's over for me now. It will never happen for me again. So she ends up in this seedy underbelly kind of world. And the first issue opens up with like, there's this weird sequence with Doctor Doom, which we won't get into. It's just such a bizarre subplot. Don't worry about it. Long story short there, the TLDR is that Dr. Doom has an Ill- illegitimate son who is the person running the nightclub ring, who's also a mutant. Where superhumans are drugged and then forced to fight each other in gladiatorial combat. Right. So the first character-driven sequence of the first issue is Hank coming to LA. He's like, I wonder if they'll make me a star. I wonder, <laughs> like, you know, uh, uh, and again, it's him... The assimilationist undercurrent of his publishing history is like there in broad view, you know? And this is back when Hank was still kind of like a Fozzie Bear type character. Yeah, like, like a he very, would be like, like making jokes, like he was yeah. your lovable acrobat guy. Right. It's before the 90s pivoted him into like amoral scientist Hank, which was right. not right. the emphasis of him previously. Yeah. And he has this intense crush on Dasser, who he really hasn't met then, because when she was rolling with the X-Men, Hank was an Avenger or the Defender. So, like, he doesn't know I think know this her. is even before she's rolling with the X-Men, isn't it? You're right. You're right. But th- all that to say is, like, there was no crossover. They've only met in passing when she was Avengers-related. Yeah. Yeah. But this whole series is about their tortured relationship. It's 
fascinating because like they fall in love you know like it's a very soap soap opera melodramatic kind of love but like it is so crazy because in typical Andosenti fashion she throws in all these like radical lefty politics yeah that are just a hallmark of her writing whether it's in daredevil or batman or, or x-men stuff but like She's like, oh yeah, these rich people want blood, you know. Like they're so, they're they're so they're so bored by their mega rich, fabulous, shiny celebrity lives that the only thing that excites them anymore is like actual people killing each other, you know. Right. And you know, there's a very underground punk vibe to the mutant community that she sets up there. Like it sort of prefigures the Morrison mutant town stuff. Yeah, it does. It's the first time that sort of is done with mutants. Yes. Because it's not like the Morlocks, like they're out, they're like living their lives, Yeah, you know, and by taking it to LA, it doesn't have to tie into the rest of the Marvel New York setting. Right. So she's able to go a little crazy with it. Yeah, there's, you know, there's like a heartbreak hotel where like this woman named Kate, who's a former mutant, runs it. And like these like, again, these weird outlier mutants, this guy who dresses up like a mime um, called Link. <laughs> There's a, a, a character named Mickey who has these poltergeist type uh, powers that he can't hardly control, a holdover from uh, Spider-Woman. So it's like, I think the core like notional thesis is like, all these characters are living on the fringes, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have Allison, who all she wants is to be a star. She wants to be in the center stage spotlight, right? So like, right. What, what happens to her? When she gets pushed to the fringe. And, you know, one of the things, it's kind of an ugly exploration of her character in terms of, like, she's so thirsty for fame that she'll compromise just about almost everything. Yeah. You know, about her personality. At that point, because the noble, I'll be the mutant star thing, she's been so smacked down with that idea that now she's just like, I just want my life back. I just want my career back. Right. And I, again, I think, again... I don't know what kind of conversations Claremont and Nocenti were having, but it, it it does imprint so heavily on like what gay life was, very yeah. much in the closet, very much underground and out of out of view for for most readers. But I think Nocenti, knowing what I know about her personal biography, was definitely accessing those spaces yeah. too. So it's just wild how the metaphor is very transparent. It's very naked if you know what to look for right there. So. Beauty and the Beast is just utterly amazing. It's, again, it's an artifact of its times. It's insane. Like, to be clear, if you pick it up, it is a crazy miniseries. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's worth reading because, first of all, it's one of the few times that a woman has had control of this character. Yeah. In this case, it's the first time, as far as I know. I think you're right. That was true of many characters that Anne Nesenti wrote. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Like one of my favorite classic X-Men backups is the Anne Nesenti backup where Emma Frost explains to the Hellfire Club waitress why she's actually empowered in her lingerie because yeah. she's using her looks to exploit and manipulate men. I actually made a mistake early on this podcast. So I was like, no, and of course, that's Chris Claremont. And like, it's a man writing it. And someone wrote in, they were like, that's Anne Nesenti. And I was like, holy shit, that is Anne Nesenti. Yeah. I forget because the classic backups, she, she also wrote the one where Rogue has her first kiss that becomes so important to Rogue's backstory. And I think yeah. that she often just looked at the characters by virtue of being a woman in the room. Louise Simonson did this for Jean also in X Factor. Yeah. And just be like, what does this woman think about when she's not around the men? Right. In a way that isn't always front of mind for the male writers yes so i think it's worth reading now the fact that you have to now go through the rest of your life knowing that dazzler has fucked hank mccoy is wild but 
it does make any story they appear in together retroactively kind of fascinating if you yeah. didn't know that previously yeah no they were in it it was real you know was- they were like a couple for a minute yeah yeah, yeah. She often, like, before she was an X-Man, there's a whole subplot in her solo where I guess, like, Warren and Candy were off again for a minute, and he ends up dating Allison for a couple issues, and that's why Rogue is furious, because Rogue is a Dazzler fan, but doesn't know Dazzler's a mutant, and then finds out not only is Dazzler a mutant, she can control her power, which is a blessing to her, and... People love her! Yeah, people love her, and the public mutant that we've been tracking because he's the only x-man whose identity we know who's a billionaire beautiful gorgeous model looking guy yeah oh she's dating him i fucking hate her i'm gonna destroy her and that becomes rogue's like core motivation for a good year is like destroy dazzler (laughs) and so then when they're on the team together rogue catches dazzler destroying danger room holograms of rogue yes yes and rogue she is programs like, the a training f- sequence and she's like i'm gonna fight rogue <laughs> i'm gonna fight rogue and rogue's like what the hell is all this then and dazzler's like i'm sorry did you forget about the part where you tried to kill me like six times one of the things i love about their rivalry when they're both on the x-men is like allison's always calling her sugar like sugar yeah like just mocking her yeah. accent yeah and i love <laughs> i love when they're fighting over long shot yes. in the outback with Rogue, it's like, Rogue, you can't even touch him. What, yeah. what's your, what are you trying yeah. to do? But I love that she wears, she puts on some of Dazzler's clothes. Yeah. She has this, there's that whole scene, it's I think at the beginning of Inferno, where she is in these little like orange gold lame hot pants and yeah. a tube top and roller skates and a helmet that matches. And you think it's Dazzler and Longshot out rollerblading. And then Dazzler interrupts them with her powers. And is like, why are you wearing my clothes and making time with my man, Rogue? Right. Yeah. It's so funny. And I think actually that she and Longshot aren't fully together. I think they actually get together together in Inferno. Don't they? Yes, that's right. I think they, I think you're right. Under there. the influence of the demons. Yeah. And then, of course, they get written out pretty quickly. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I love Longshot so much as a character. I love Longshot as a character, too. I do think that, unfortunately, the pairing of Longshot and Dazzler marginalized Dazzler for a very long time. Because when the 90s changeover happened and Claremont was booted from the franchise... Yeah. Oh, and I was asked on Twitter to clarify this because last week's episode, Zach said... Claremont quit the book and I said when Claremont was fired from the book and people were like which is it and to be clear what happened was technically he quit but basically Bob Harris and Jim Lee steadily took away the control that he had over the book until such time as he was essentially scripting the plots they were ordering and he felt he had no choice but to quit so yes he quit but not because he wanted to leave so I use the word fired because I want to communicate that it was hostile and that it was not on his terms even if he made the final decision of like i need to bounce and they always he called their bluff like they never thought he would do it you know and the rest is history but claremont was dazzler's champion the way that we say that characters like this need a champion so once claremont was out in the same way that kitty pride is marginalized in the 90s because she stays on excalibur which claremont and davis made it kind of its own thing but as the 90s go on it just becomes x-men british edition right and kitty is stuck there similarly dazzler they marry her off to Longshot and drop the two of them in the mojoverse i think because first of all there was a directive from bob harris that he didn't want 
non-mutant characters hanging around because it was confusing. Like on the X-Men is my understanding. So they took out Longshot because he's like an alien. He's not a mutant. But isn't he a mutant within his... Uh, within the Mojo verse, he's a mutant of. It's like Warlock. It's a tricky thing where, right. like, Warlock and Brew and Ariel from Coconut Grove, they're like mutants of their own species, but they're right. not human mutants. Right. So it's like, do they have an X gene? Ariel on page in the Utopia era says she has an X gene. So I'd love to no prize together that the Coconut Grove aliens must be partly <laughs> human or something, right? Yeah. With Longshot, the way they fixed it is with what we'll get into, which is the insane time paradox they created about Shatterstar. Yes. Oh my god. So Longshot now probably has an X gene because he's partly Dazzler, which is insane to think about. But we'll get there when we get there. The <laughs> I feel like we need like we're gonna need like two more hours just I like- know, this is gonna be a long one. This is a planet size episode of Cerebro. So Longshot got written out, I think in part because they were trying to get rid of like Stevie Hunter disappears around this time. Right. Moira fades yeah. into the background around this time the non-mutant characters were essentially written out warlock gets killed off in extinction agenda like they yeah. did that pretty deliberately in the 90s dazzler and Longshot also were characters that were so identified with a time period and it was hard when you're relaunching the x-men in the 90s to figure out what to do with them Longshot is the 80s character so much so that's been his problem up to the present it's hard to bring him back without like if you bring him back without his mullet it doesn't look like long shot so it's like you can only really bring him back at moments when that doesn't seem insane or lean into he's an alien that's what they look like on mojo world like who cares right? right dazzler they had a couple options and instead of doing what i think would have been the right thing to do which is just update her for the 90s right the way that they updated her into pat benatar in the 80s well that goes to one of the things i think that is so interesting about again the stewardship of dazzler as a character and again you see parallels when you look at characters like luke cage yeah it's well-intentioned luke and misty were both stuck in the 70s in a lot of ways and it took a long time to get them out and they're you know their first kind of like iterations moved through well-intentioned creators who don't actually touch the cultures that they're the characters are supposed to be drawn from, right? Right. So I think the same thing with Dazzler. It's like, maybe John Romita Jr. was going to clubs back in the day. That Grace Jones concept art right. of Dazzler is pretty convincing. And I think Claremont was in that right. scene. But that's it, really. But Tom DeFalco? I don't know. Yeah, no. No. It's not. This is not someone in the nightlife. It's just not. Again, I could be wrong. Tom, if you're out there, call us. Let us know whether you were at Studio 54. I'm just saying it doesn't feel super authentic. But I think, again, as we're talking about the post-Claremont era of Dazzler's publication history and who was guiding the X-Men at the time, these are not people who, to my mind, had the kind of cultural obsessions or touchstones to update her. Right. In the 90s, who do you make Dazzler into? I don't know. Well, the white thing is also a problem with updating Dazzler to the 90s. The white thing is like to to make what I'm saying is the fact that they made her white makes it harder to update her because the obvious, obvious thing to do if she were black would be you update her through the 80s basically the same way you make her kind of a like JJ Fad kind of thing. You know what I mean? And then in the the 90s, 90s, you make her Destiny's Child. Yeah. Yeah. And then you just transition her to Beyonce and she'd be fine. En Vogue, Aaliyah. Yeah. yeah. En Vogue, yes. New Jack Swing, Escape. Yeah. 
all of that stuff. You lean into the hip hop aspect because that's the thing about 90s pop is it becomes for the first time in terms of the top 40 charts overtly right. the black music that it's drawing right. from. Right. Really, the person you make Dazzler in the early 90s is Mariah Carey, yeah. right? Yes. That would have been perfect. Perfect. I think that they just thought it was easier to shuffle her off because they didn't want to use Long Shot. They didn't particularly want to use Dazzler because it would be hard to update her into a 90s pop star in a way that wouldn't feel forced to them or whatever. I'm just speculating. So they send them both off to Mojo World because they don't really want to use Mojo World either because Mojo... I love what Leah Williams is doing with it now, making it more of like internet streaming and stuff. But in the 80s, when it's introduced, it's very much about like, wow, like TV's gone crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because that's really like the dawn of reality TV, right? Yes. Is that like late 80s moment. So that made perfect sense. But in the 90s, it's before Survivor and all of those shows really bring back reality TV in a big way. From like the loud family and like all you really have is the real world right. for a long yes. time, oh God, right? Yes. And like the real world is not Mojoverse. No, it's not. It's not. It is the X-Men though, which is interesting. Yes, it is. It is. It absolutely is. Particularly that season with Pedro Zamora and Judd Winnick and Puck yes. and all those. Yes. I mean, that is that is an X-Men yes. book. Yeah. You just have to give them powers. Right. The point is, Mojo is something that also needed to be updated. I actually love in the story that writes out Dazzler and Longshot for a long time... Mojo is replaced by Mojo 2, the sequel, which just conceptually is a very, very... And he's like an extreme 90s hot Mojo, yes. which is a very, very funny... Metacommentary, yeah. But after that, they don't really feel the need to do anything with them. And they write her out in the way that I've said this many times. Superhero characters, this is how you write them out. She gets married and she's pregnant. I totally forgot about all that stuff. And then when they did bring her back... Someone, I forget who, is about to ask about the baby, and Gene stops them and is like, I don't sense any pregnancy or anything, and you need to not bring it up. Yeah. So the implication is that she had a miscarriage, and it's never really touched on again until Peter David, 20 years after that, retcons in that the baby was Shatterstar, who was then taken to the future of the Mojo world and then sent back in time by Mephisto and becomes the genetic template to create Longshot. So Shatterstar is his own grandfather and Longshot is the child of himself and It's more confusing than than, than Cable. Like, we're just saying something. I'm of two minds about it. I don't care for it generally. However... I do like that it ties up the Dazzler's miscarriage plot because I felt like that was just kind of... A a sad downbeat to leave. A sad downbeat thing that was never handled. I do, however, think, and I've said this about Valeria Richards, I've said this about there are a couple... Part of why I think they shouldn't have superheroes lose children is that they invariably come back. And I don't know, I've never lost a child. I've never had a child. But I feel like if I were a reader who had gone through a miscarriage or a stillbirth and I was reading this and it was like, it's all okay because now I'm a superhero, yeah. even though you never knew me. I find that very strange. And it's a place where the sci-fi It undercuts the drama. Weird like it me. hollows out the drama. Yeah. But I also love the idea now that Shatterstar is like a comfortable queer man, himbo extraordinaire, hot guy. <laughs> I love the idea that Dazzler has a hot gay son. Yeah, yeah. That's really fun. It's like a natural progression. But we've never seen them interact. I'm really excited there's a solicit. It looks like Dazzler and Lila Cheney are going to help X-Factor rescue Shatterstar from Mojo World in the next few months. Wow. Because they're on the cover of the Return to Mojo World storyline, Lila and Dazzler. So I am hoping that we will get to see Dazzler reunite with her gay son and have them have like a real conversation. 
because that's hilarious. The idea that this super stud bisexual barbarian hero, his mother is the mutant Kylie Minogue. That's very funny. Hilarious. Yeah. What I don't like about it is the way that it's just a further layer of confusion onto the long shot and Dazzler plot that we didn't need, particularly because they're always getting amnesia or whatever. They don't remember each other. Now they have a whole child they don't remember. Like, it's just all complicated stuff we didn't need. I also, I always liked the implication in, I want to say it was the late 90s, that Spiral was Shatterstar's mother. Yes, they they seem to be hinting really strongly at that. They yeah. were hinting really strongly at that and that that was why Spiral felt weird about Shatterstar and didn't want to hurt him and this other stuff. And I don't know, I think Spiral's a really interesting character, especially after the retcon that she is Ricochet Rita from the Nascenti miniseries. So I really would have liked that more, I think, but say la vie. Dazzler has a lot of weird wrinkles like that, yeah. like the plot that she's immortal, which someone wrote in about, so we could get yeah, into please, that then. Yeah, please, I barely remember this, so you're going to have to Yeah, so it. we'll get into that in the reader questions. But yeah, and so it wasn't really until New Excalibur, when Claremont came back, Yeah, and they were like, okay, well, you can have Excalibur, because no one's doing anything with Excalibur. Which characters do you want? You can't have these characters we're using in the X-Men, right? right? So he grabs Sage and Dazzler, who are two characters that no one else particularly cared about. He does exactly the update kind of thing of Dazzler that we were talking about. He turns her into pink. Yeah. He even gives her the haircut. You know, it's funny. You mentioned Britney Spears earlier, and um, I didn't get into this, but my my entree into journalism as a career was at Teen People magazine where I was a fact checker. Mm. So I watched Britney's whole meteoric rise then. It's interesting like you said, the nostalgia that people in their 30s now have for Britney Spears. Well, because we grew up with her. Right. Like, she was, like, two years older than us. So it was, like, a very real thing. Yeah. She was our Debbie Gibson. Right. Our Tiffany. And it does feel Dazzler-esque because, you know, there's a cohort of people who aren't fans but are aware of her who kind of feel like she's a joke. Right. Or or now, with the Free Britney stuff after the documentary, like, they feel sad for her, the sympathy for her. And that, to me, that feels very Dazzler-esque, right? Don't you imagine that there would be a Dazzler documentary all about the prejudice she faced yes, in those 80s stories? yeah. And that it would cause, like, a Dazzler renaissance? Yes. Like, it would be like, look at all of the anti-mutant bigotry Dazzler faced in the recording industry in the sliding timescale 80s, so, like, in 2005 right, or whatever. Right. And, like, now let's deal with it. And Dazzler has a huge comeback yes. album. And, it like, that is absolutely what would and happen. And to me, that's the that's the launching pad for, like, whatever the next iteration anybody wants to do with her. I really want her on that X-Men team. And if not that, I want her on X-Corp. Yes, X-Corp should book. be great. Because that would be perfect. Her and Warren used to date. It's a little bit messy. They did. So there's a weird messiness or there. Or they get along great. Yeah, or not. Or maybe they fall into bed and it's hilarious. Because yeah. also, she and Betsy are best friends. That's right. From back yes. then. I would love to see her and Betsy interacting. I would love like a weird Betsy Dazzler Warren yeah. love triangle moment. Or like maybe they have doors in adjoining rooms. Maybe they do. Well, again, I find Allison so heterosexual. Betsy would be down, obviously. But look, she was touring with uh, with, with, with Lila Cheney, all that time. right? Yeah, yeah, no, there's yeah, that's true. That's definitely true. I just feel like Dazzler is one of those people who's just like, okay, this is the kind of straight girl I feel like Dazzler is. I feel like Dazzler has lesbian and queer woman friends and like is obsessed with them. Yeah, and it's just like, oh my god, I wish I could date girls. 
she's that girl, you know, like, and we all know that girl. And she means so well when she says it, but the lesbians are just like, yes, we know, Allison, yeah. like, you know, but she's just like, oh my God, men are the worst. I wish I'm just so straight. I can't, you know? So here's my, my like fantasy pitch is like Betsy and Rachel are like going out. Betsy's not sure what's going on. And like, is this a thing? And Dazzler is like working with Warren and they have this weird, like it's like Allie and Warren are just having this weird vibe and they like used to date so long ago. And so Betsy and Allison like sit down for a drink and are just like, what is going on in our lives? And like catch up. Yeah. Cause it's been a minute. I really love in Excalibur actually how Rogue has been stressing that like she's known Betsy forever and they've been friends for a really yes. long time because they were also rivals like Rogue and Dazzler yep. in that eighties run. But by the end of that run, they've all gotten really close it's an era that people don't reference that much, but like those three women yeah. and Storm were really the heart of the X-Men yeah. for a long time. In New Excalibur, when Claremont brought her back, she had not been used in a long time. Right. She's not used enormously well because New Excalibur is a weird book. She has a flirtation with Pete Wisdom that I actually kind of enjoy because he's yeah, yeah. he's like just her kind of sleaze, you know? Like if you go back to her solo book, like oh my God. all of those her her romantic history men. is just littered with fuckboys. I mean, we just Yeah, it's just like she loves that, so it makes perfect sense that she would go out with Pete Wisdom. Which was always the thing I liked about her romance with Longshot is that he's so innocent, so naive, so pure. He's so nice and wholesome. It's like finally a yeah. nice boy for for Allison. Yeah. yeah. Right. That culminates in they also brought back Longshot in Exiles and then they meet up, but he doesn't remember her and she's actually like suicidal about it for a minute. Yeah. I don't love that beat, but it also makes sense to me because of exactly what you just said, which is that Longshot was the only guy where it felt like even Warren is a fuckboy, yeah. right? Yeah. And like Hank, let's not even get into it. So the only guy that Allison has been with who has ever really been probably treated her just well. A good yeah. guy. Mm-hmm is him and so to find him again after believing he was dead yeah since like 95 or whatever in the story where we find out she had a miscarriage we also find out that Longshot is missing and presumed dead to finally see him again and him be like who are you i'm sorry and she's like i'm your wife i understand her having this moment it's actually very similar to another story claremont wrote which is the scene where madeline Pryor considers killing herself after her baby's been kidnapped and scott's left her and all of that right. and havoc has to talk her down you don't think she actually would have done it, but she's standing on a cliff thinking about it, you know, and it's a similar kind of scene. After that, they're off page again for a while because New Excalibur gets canceled and the idea is like they're just sort of reconnecting. He started to kind of remember her. His memories are kind of coming back. But then we don't see her again until Fraction brings her into Uncanny. Yeah. With the Greg Land art. Yes. It does create... One of my favorite Dazzler panels of all time, which I did share in the solicit for questions for this episode, which is when Pixie is in hospital and <laughs> Beast. This is actually where the Hank and Allie of it all comes back in because Fraction clearly knows his Dazzler stuff. Hank is like, well, Pixie's really badly hurt. I happen to know Pixie is a huge Dazzler fan. So he surprises Pixie with Allison. Dazzler's here to visit you and Pixie freaks out because she's like I look like shit and Dazzler's here it's this one bizarre panel where here's the thing about Greg Land if you're not a person who was reading comics around this time Greg Land's figures are traced from photographs they are unnatural in their uncanny is a good word for it (laughs) sort of photorealistic way so 
Allison, and this is in the costume that she got in the Fraction era, which is a bizarre costume that is most famous for the pussy starburst. The starburst insignia is sort of the Dazzler yeah. signature, right? But so in this costume, it's just sort of bursting out of her crotch in this like corona of light. Corona used to mean something okay. I, I don't know what I would call it now. But the point is... <laughs> halo? In a halo. A halo of light. It's odd placement. Odd placement. Yeah. She's like leaning in sexily into the hospital room because it's Greg Land. Her titties are at right angles from one another. She's gotten this enormous boob job in the interim since New Excalibur. She has this expression on her face. And listen, I'm just going to say it. As I said, I came up in the nightlife. It is the most gacked out cocaine expression I have ever seen on the face of a Marvel character. She's just leaning in, coke to the gills in this insane outfit with the pussy starburst and she leans in and she says hey i'm Allie. hey <laughs> it's the most bizarre line of dialogue the look on her face is insane the costume's insane the boobs are insane the point is pixie's thrilled so that's all that matters but i love the idea that after she and longshot broke up again because whatever didn't work out Dazzler's just finding herself. She's like, listen, I got a residency in San Francisco. I'm doing a lot of coke. I'm just trying to get it together, all right? We're just having fun. We're here in Utopia. We got decimated. It's a mess. This is around when she gets to lead the X-Men street team off panel that we never see. That's her and Boom Boom and Lifeguard. And I would kill for an X-Men Legends arc yes. of that. <laughs> show us show us those three blonde weirdos messy yeah messy messy bitches just like having adventures on the streets of the castro that yeah. is what i want that is the x-men legends arc higher fraction to do that bring back land i would tolerate it for that specifically just that arc i feel like i haven't seen him since he straightened monica rambo's hair i feel like that's the last time anybody saw greg land <laughs> am i wrong <laughs> I don't know. He gave her like a feathered Yeah, it was like a, like a Dominican blowout. I'm like, yeah. But it's not even that. No. Anyway. Anyway, moving on. That was really it for a while for Dazzler. Was she like existed in Uncanny on and off. Then she got the Greg Pak extreme X-Men series that was basically just an Exiles book. That was great. Yeah. yeah. Where she travels through time super and space. Book. And like, yeah. it's super, super fun. Then that got canceled and she wound up on Havoc's team in Rosencanny for a minute. Yes. And that's kind of it. I mean, that kind of catches us yeah, up to the present. And, you know, in the Krakoa era, we've seen her, what, a couple of times? Fireworks in the background. the party, yeah. Yeah. That's why I think maybe she will be on this team, because there are a few characters who I think have been conspicuous in their absence, and I wonder if it's because they've been saved for Hickman's big, here's the X-Men, you know? Like, yeah. Husk is another one, where I feel like she was in House of X, and then she disappeared, and maybe right. she's going to be well, back. they made a whole point of, like, having the whole resurrection uh, storyline based around her, right? Like, didn't she fight in the arena? Am I confusing my I'm confusing my characters, aren't I? That was Husk's sister, Melody, yes, who was, it was the other the other Yeah, the other Guthrie girl. The retcon Guthrie girl who's not in the earlier Guthrie stories, but just right. appeared one day and then was depowered because they were like, We gotta push this girl off page. Um but it all a uh, one of the best issue, one of the best issues of the X Men ever, in my opinion, which is that issue that Hickman did. Yes. Oh my god, it was so good. So Unbelievable. good. Unbelievable. And I can't wait for Way of X, which is gonna pick up some of the themes from that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Sysburger is a genius, so that book's going to be good. So great. Jeez. Dazzler just had a cameo in uh, X Factor. They were asking around about Siren. Yeah. 
she was like, oh, I haven't, I haven't seen her in a bit, you know, but like she's around, you know, so it was just like a brief remember Dazzler. And I was like, okay, good. You know, it's funny. The, I think it's development has stopped on it, but they announced that Tigra Dazzler animated series. It got canceled. Yeah. yeah. They were going to do Tigra and Dazzler. It was like a Hulu thing. Yeah. Modoc and Howard the Duck and then Tigra and Dazzler. And then it was going to turn into the offenders, like the defenders. Right. I think that when the Netflix franchise got killed. They killed all of that stuff besides Modoc. The, yeah, the Modoc show is either coming out, out in or May. About to come out. Yeah, coming out in May. But I was so defensive when they announced that because I'm like, the the the, the idea was like they're influencers, right? Like, uh, it felt like they should have used Boom Boom because it felt like they were doing the next wave Boom Boom right thing. Right. And my thing is, Dastard's not a joke. Like I've been no very hardcore about this. Again, that's it's part part of like. The root of my Dazzler fandom is that, like, she's not a joke, you know? No, Dazzler is camp, but you have to take it seriously enough because she takes it really seriously. Right. That's the difference between her and a character like Boom Boom, who's camp, but is also... Boom Boom is a joke. Yeah. Boom Boom has depths. Someday in a Boom Boom episode, we'll get into this, Boom Boom has a lot of pathos and a lot of really dark shit in her backstory, and her attitude is kind of a defense mechanism, but... The character is played for comedy right. and presents herself as being a comedic character on purpose. Right. Dazzler wants to be taken seriously. It's kind of like, I actually thought of Dazzler when I watched the Lady Gaga Star is Born because there's that moment when the character that Lady Gaga plays, Allie, sort of sells out and becomes a pop star, right? Yeah. People were like, oh, it's so funny that these songs are intentionally bad. And Diane Warren, who wrote one of them, was like, these songs aren't intentionally bad. These are good pop songs. Yeah. You just don't value this kind of music. Right, right. Now, the lyrics are a little silly to wink at the audience, but that song, Hair, Body, Face, from that movie, is a great song and is absolutely a Dazzler song. And that's the kind of music Dazzler makes, and people don't take it seriously because it's disco-inspired. For the same reason that disco wasn't taken seriously, it was gay music yes. and black yeah. music, and yeah. it was shut down. Yeah. That's the thing, right? Like, no one wanted Sylvester to be a legitimate star. Right. That was not something people wanted to allow to happen. And so when you have Burn Disco, Ban Disco, that whole movement is very much... Reactionary. Reactionary, conservative, anti-black, anti-gay, for sure. They wanted to shut down those clubs is what they yeah. wanted to do. Yeah. Those gay discos that Grace Jones was performing in, they wanted those to go away. And so Disco Isn't Real Art was a talking point that was used to devalue black and gay and black gay, in many cases, contributions to music that have endured to the present. You just look at last year in pop music. It's like Jesse Ware made a disco yeah. album. Kylie Minogue put out a new album called Disco in which she literally on the cover just is Dazzler with the Starburst and it is just an album of Dazzler music. Jesse Ware put out a disco album. Dua Lipa put out a disco album. It is absolutely back lizzo just had a huge disco single and the funny thing about all of this is that again that period where inside marvel comics dazzler gets referred to as a joke i think is very much tethered to that you know yes it's funny because i was reading and prepping for this episode i have this like really intense vestigial memory of a dazzler panel where like early on in her comic book series, she would have a tape recorder or or transistor radio. Again, this is going how far back it is. To generate sound that she could use to right. make the light. Yeah, because it's before she could absorb it. That happens like halfway through I the remember series. a panel where she said, where like part of the lyrics would be like, that's why I'm called a dancer. And I was like, 
oh man, did I imagine that? Where is that? I still haven't found it. But again, the fact that she's a character who presumably in the fiction would sing a song where she refers to herself by name, like makes herself a third person. Part of what's so brilliant about her as a character is she constructs this persona within the Marvel Universe. Yes. It's like a real brand that she's created. Yeah. This is why she would have worked, again, if it had been a black character, you could have made the 90s Dazzler a hip-hop character because it's not unlike an MC thing. Persona, right? Yeah. 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 She's Queen Latifah, you know, in that way. Like, she's created this person and then inhabited the person. Right. She became a star as Dazzler, not as... Not as Alison Blair. Blair. Yeah. Right. And, you know, again, it was a great twist on the secret identity thing, further multiplied by the fact that she's a mutant, right? She's like, no, I put this makeup on, I go on stage, I'm that person who has powers and uses them, but, like, really, I'm just trying to, like, you know... I'm just trying to... I just want my music to touch people, and I want cute boys to love me, and I want my name in lights, you know? Yeah. And she's just constantly thwarted. Part of why the Outback era is so interesting is that when she in a very self-sacrificing way, proves herself as a real hero in Fall of the Mutants. Yeah. When she's been blinded by Spiral and all of that stuff and still fights like Psylocke, uses telepathy to be her eyes so she can shoot. Yeah. That's a great, great sequence for the character. When the X-Men die and Roma brings them back, the gift that Roma gives them is that they are now completely unable to be filmed. Right. They're invisible. Yeah. I'm getting to that in my reread that I'm doing right now, so I'll see soon, I imagine. But I can't remember if it is really explored how Dazzler feels about not being able to be photographed or filmed. Yeah, it's the complete antithesis of her motivations up until that point. But when you look at it, that's the time period when she fully, really devotes herself to being a mutant superhero. Right. Like, she doesn't even think about music because... Or being famous. Her career has been trashed. She joined the X-Men. She's a hero now. She's found her purpose. And she doesn't feel that pull and it's not until the siege perilous spits her out not remembering that she's a mutant right that she goes back to music so again it's these the the core tension in her character is push and pull between fame and wanting it but also having to hide a part of herself like gets deployed in these really interesting ways during that era and i think there's still so much fodder there to be done with that aspect of her character absolutely and i think krakoa is a great time to do it yes for sure for sure, because she, now she can be out in the open, you know? Yeah, and she can be, much like Kylie is the face of Australian music to many people. She can like, be the ambassador, She yeah. can be the Krakoan pop star. Yeah. You can just do it now. So why don't we transition into the reader question? Ready. Chris Manning writes, Hello, Connor and Dazzling Guest. Dazzler's music and her origin is obviously dated in 2021. In the Krakoa era, where her music could be a real way for mutant culture to be exported to the world, is there an artist you could use as a template to do something interesting with her? And is there a format, a single issue, a giant size one-shot, an OGN, etc., that would make sense to explore it in? Children of the Atom hit on this briefly by mentioning Dazzler having a Lizzo feature on a song. It was an interesting toe in the water. Dua Lipa comes to mind for me personally, but maybe there's another way to explore the fact that she was at least kind of modeled on Grace Jones and then turned into a white woman. Love the podcast and I'm waiting for whatever the planet size version is if giant size is about three hours. Well, you may find out this week. So I've said this before. I think that if you want to make Dazzler young, then she absolutely should be a disco pastiche artist like Dua Lipa or like the new Jesse Ware album or like Lady Gaga, honestly. Lady Gaga famously is a white woman who Grace Jones accused of ripping her off. 
Now, depends on what you consider ripping off. Lady Gaga always said, I'm very inspired by Grace Jones. So it wasn't like she didn't credit Grace Jones. But I remember this was when Lady Gaga first became famous. I don't know how Grace would feel about it now, but it was back when that first album came out and Grace was asked in an interview, do you have any interest in collaborating with Lady Gaga? She said that she's a really big fan of yours. I mean, at the time, Lady Gaga was wearing all of those sort of Aliyah-inspired hood outfits that were very, very Grace Jones and was modeling for Aliyah, I believe. Like, it was very much a, a Grace moment. Right. And Grace Jones said... Well, actually, I would prefer to collaborate with people who are not copying me. And I think that was the last word we ever heard about it. I love Grace. I love Gaga. I hope they've sorted it out since. I think that that is the route you go if you want Dazzler to be a younger character. Personally, I think she's more interesting older as an older character. I agree. I think Dazzler should be 40-ish. I think that her heyday should be behind her. And I think that she should be finding a new audience. Right. It is what I said is like a Britney Spears kind of thing. Or Christina Aguilera does this, where it's like, I'm back with a feature or with a collaboration or a duet or something with an artist that young people are into. Right. I think that is where Dazzler should be. Make her, honestly, actually, if there's one artist, I would say you make Dazzler now in 2021. She's Nelly Furtado. Oof. That's good. I like that. I see Nelly Furtado, who is also Portuguese, by the way, as kind of like the post-Tina Marie. Like, not that she has that voice, because no one has Tina Marie's voice. No. But in the sense of really loves Black music, understands it's Black music, hires the right people, works with the right people, and is actually in that world, and isn't just dipping her toe in yeah. for cool factor or whatever. There's not that kind of icky... And is beloved, in turn, by that community. Yeah. I feel like that's where you would want to take Dazzler. And, like, it hasn't really happened for Nelly yet, but I guarantee you if Nelly Furtado got the right song with some popular Gen Z artist on it, it would explode. Yeah. And that, I think, is who Dazzler is now. Promiscuous hit, that whole loose album hit when I was 18. And I'm now 33 today. Happy birthday. Thank you. But I'm just saying like that to me feels like the right amount of distance in the sliding timescale. Dazzler's biggest hit should have been about eight to 10 years ago. Yeah. She's around. People love her. But she's a little older. That's my take. I think that that's how she works. And I do think that whatever type of music you give her, she needs to be... This is actually why the Bendis turn where she went punk like she was in Ultimate didn't really work for me. Yeah. Not that, I mean, now, like, Polystyrene was a huge punk. There are, there are obviously black artists in punk, sure. but I feel that Dazzler always feels like she should be... Mainstream. Mainstream pop that's, like, quote-unquote urban, that, like, has that black music crossover dance music thing. Like, house revival, something. Like, she needs to be in that world. And the thing about this kind of... The thing about this kind of interpretation, Connor, is that like you make her a little bit older, you have her glory days behind her. That lets you position her as a groundbreaking advocate for mutant rights. Yes. Free Krakoa, right? Which she was, you know? Yes. That's part of her story. I actually think that another touchstone you could point to is like, it's again, it's like God Loves Man Kills. It's like those other things from the 80s that when you talk about them now, you're like, eh. but blondie when she did rapture yeah that was i mean people now will get annoyed when people like it's the first rap song that was a hit and it's like well yes because it was a white woman doing it but she hired fab five freddy right like all of those people and she name checks them in the song and it was a way to bring that 
to a white audience that had not been receptive to it. And it did break ground for black creatives who came after that song. Dazzler is kind of that for mutants, right? Yeah. Like, I would imagine by this, like, Bling, it would be interesting to see that character enter the showbiz world. Her parents are basically like Beyonce and Jay-Z fictionalized or whatever, right? Like, I'm not super familiar with that character because that whole class of students is not my wheelhouse. Right. I'm going to catch up at some point because... That's what we do on Cerebro. That's what we do on Cerebro, right. So that would be a character it'd be fun to see exploring like Krakoan culture and maybe Dazzler's her Tina Marie. You know what I'm saying? Like it would have that feeling of like, oh, this is that cool white woman who did stuff with my dad back in, you know? And that helps it. You can embrace the weirdness of dazzler without making it a joke as a mutant celebrity you know yeah and the weirdness about her race i mean like you could lean into it and like make it a thing that's on the page like you can talk about it i think that's the thing again that continues to pull me back to her is that like there's a core tension there like mutants generally don't get to be celebrities right you know they've been hated and feared quote unquote so the fact that she became a celebrity in the closet, came out the closet, and then there's this whole kind of tumultuous... But then she came back. She kind of did have that Britney Spears arc too, right? Yeah. Where it's like, yeah. now, Britney Spears has other issues in her personal life that have obviously kept her from fully coming back in whatever sense she wants to, and that's a whole other podcast. But, you know, that sense of like a fall from grace that everyone reports on, that the tabloids right. rip you to shreds over. But Dazzler can't be kept down. She always yeah. comes back. Yeah. So she's due for a comeback. I think so too. Josh Link writes, Hi Connor and Evan, as a huge fan of the Outback era and Dazzler's incredible costume at the time, one of my favorite team dynamics was the rivalry between Dazzler and Rogue. The one thing I never understood though was them fighting over Longshot. What was it they both saw in him? Was it his luck powers impacting their decision-making skills? Please help me understand what the appeal was of this bemulleted goober. Wow, the slander. I will not stand for any kind of long long shot slander. I'm going to let you go off defending your boy Longshot. Yeah, so again, I think part of the appeal of Longshot is that like, again, like Dazzler, he's such an 80s character. The bullet, the kind of the the leather, leather variant of the Canadian tuxedo. Um, But like, he's this naive character who's got a pure soul. You know, he's like a little baby in terms of his actual experience with the world as we see it and live it. And I think the appeal there to characters like Dazzler and Rogue is that like they can get some of their innocence back by virtue of engaging with this character with Longshot. Think about who Rogue is at this point. She's a former terrorist, former criminal yeah. who stole Carol Danvers' powers and memory and she can't touch anybody. Intimacy is verboten for her right it's mm-hmm. completely a thing that she's not she can't know Longshot presents as a dude who doesn't have any of the prejudice any of these prejudices against her so th- i can see why that would be attractive to her for rogue and again he's innocent rogue's whole thing is like she projects this very sexual bravado because she's afraid of the intimacy because of her power so it's sort of a defense mechanism and Longshot as a man who doesn't have any... There's no outward facing libido with Longshot. Right. He has one as we come to see in Inferno, but that's part of what gets him and Dazzler together finally is that he becomes more seductive in the way that Dazzler is accustomed to. The natural state of him is just to be like, these girls are my friends. Yeah. And so for Rogue, it's non-threatening. It allows her to play exactly as much of the game as she wants. Right. 
And I think for Dazzler, it's similar. You know, she's just been through a parade of sleazeballs at this point, you yes. know? Who have ruined her life and, like, in, in some cases, like, tried to kill her. Like, right, it's been not right. good. So, dude, like, Longshot shows up. You don't want to kill me? You're not trying to fuck me? And you're so nice. Yeah, you're so nice. And you have no ulterior motivations <laughs> besides right. being so, friends with me. I think that's, you know... He's the quote-unquote nice guy who's not a creep, you know? He also ultimately gives her a quest. Like, when they write her out, it's like, well, your career's never really going to recover from this anti-mutant prejudice thing since you came out. But you've always, in your heart, known that you're a hero. Here is an entire dimension of enslaved people that you can help liberate with this guy who loves you. It gives her something to do. And while it's clearly in the service of writing her out, it really does feel in keeping with the character up to that point yeah i think longshot is just such a great character and he's i think he's a good character for her yeah i like them together i want to see i want to see them back together and i want to see how they'd be like an updated take yeah 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 dr khalid who just got their phd like last week or whatever defended so congrats to listener khalid so, Cleed, aka Hunty Chase, writes in every week with the question, is this character a turf? And I have always said, I'm not going to answer that on the air. This week, though, I said, in honor of you passing your dissertation defense, I will actually answer this question on the air because it's also a very easy one this time. No, Dazzler is not a turf. Definitely not. Definitely not. Like, Dazzler has at least one trans woman on her team. Dazzler is in the clubs. Right. Like, Dazzler refers to the dolls on Twitter, and the dolls know who she's talking about. Like, that is, Dazzler is that kind of girl. So there's absolutely no way. Dazzler is for trans rights. Like, if Dazzler was a real person, Dazzler would be on pose. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, she would have made sure that yes. she got a the cameo on pose. Yeah. on pose. She would have called up Janet Mock... She would have made that happen. So absolutely, Dazzler is 100% with the girls, in my opinion. The other question, though, the, the real question. Khalid writes, Dearest Connor and illustrious guest, firstly, I love you and love the show. In a Dazzler episode, I find myself thinking about the Ashley to her Jessica Simpson. What's Mortis up to? She's my personal Zaladane. And the last time we saw Lois, she was getting psychic therapy from Betsy. God help her. Do you think there's any potential in bringing her back to play with their pop goth dynamic? How could she and her relationship with Allison factor into whatever's next for Dazzler? I really like that character, too. The Zaladane reference, Evan, is because... That's a deep cut. Well, I've become fixated on this show with Zaladane because she's like the reveal that most made people crack up if they weren't familiar. Because I was like, and then Chris thought, her name's Zaladane. What if she's Lorna Dane's long-lost sister? And that's hilarious. I am a Zaladane advocate. Justice for Zaladane. On this show... A Zaladane is 12 appearances. <laughs> it's become a unit of measurement. So before we get any further, let's calculate how many Zaladanes Dazzler has appeared. Dazzler has exactly 400 appearances right now, which wow. is kind of cool. What's your reference tool for that, homie? That was the Marvel Wiki. I checked it okay. this morning. All right. That might include like handbooks and things, though. So mm, Okay. All right. But it says 400 appearances. I'm going to take them at their word. Marvel Wiki, don't steer me wrong. Which means that she has appeared 33.33333 repeating Zaladanes. That's a lot of Zaladanes. Good for her. To get back to your question about the other long-lost sister of the X-Men, Lois London is an interesting character. Evan, what are your thoughts on this character, if you have any? 
I mean, so little, you know, it just seemed kind of unnecessary. Like, there's something interesting about, like, sibling rivalry that's delayed, right? Like, they didn't grow yeah. up together. So, the, like, enmity they had towards each other feels manufactured. But also, it's like, you know, you have a half-sister somewhere who, like, oh, you got to have one of their parents actually love you and raise you the way I wanted. But that's not really part of their dynamic. Well, what I like about it is that they both kind of feel that way about the other one because both of their parents suck. Right, that's true. And so they got parent trapped, essentially. And <laughs> Allie just grew up with her dad, who was a asshole and yeah. dies at the end of the Dazzler Solo series in a very, like, rip-off of the Proteus arc way, yeah. which is yeah. a little goofy. Like, it's this other character who has to possess host bodies and burns them out. And you're like, Mm, I've read this and it was yeah. better that time. Yeah. Better the first time. Yeah. He gets killed off. Dazzler's mother was a lounge singer who abandoned the family for her career, then got hooked on drugs and married this asshole guy who is Lois's father. And Lois grew up in this very abusive household. Yeah. But she had the mother that Allison spent her whole life longing for. So... Neither of them got the good... Like, nuclear family experience. Right, they but they yeah. each kind of resent the part that the other one got. Yes. So that's interesting. And then when they meet, it's because Lois approaches her. It turns into what I think is one of the more interesting arcs in the solo, which is when a homeless man attacks Lois and she defends herself and kills him with her mutant power that activates, which is just a death touch. I mean, it's a real shitty power. Yeah. You thought Rogue had a bad. Yeah. It just kills people when you touch them. She's like, we need to go to the police. And Dazzler is like, I just had a really bad experience with the cops, actually. And I don't think that they'll treat you fairly because you're a mutant. Yeah. So they just Thelma and Louise it. Like, they go on the run. Allie puts on a wig. They're like out there and they go on a whole quest and then they get blackmailed into killing a man maybe who turns out to be the estranged father. Oh my God. I totally forgot about this. Yeah. So they get blackmailed into trying to kill Lois's estranged father who she hasn't seen in a long time since her mother ran away from the abusive marriage. It's interesting because the resolution of the story is that... That guy, who's now a rich investor, tries to revitalize Allie's career out in Los Angeles, and he puts her in danger for publicity. And she's like, all right, we're leaving. And Lois is like, I'm not, actually. And Allie feels very, very betrayed. But Lois is like, I don't feel like I'm safe out there in the world. Yeah. And he can protect me. Allie thinks she's weak. Which is a weird place for those characters to wind up because, you know, Allie was that girl. Yeah. Not that long ago. Exactly. But she, I think she feels so betrayed that she's just like. Not sympathetic. She's not sympathetic. She's not sympathetic at all. If you want to be with this asshole because you would rather live under his protection than maybe be in danger with me, then fuck you. After everything I just did for you. As someone I've never met. I embraced you as my sister. Yeah. I've been defending you. I have sacrificed a lot to keep you safe in the last couple issues. Like, whatever, bitch, essentially. <laughs> and just is out. And then we never see Lois again until Necrotia, yeah. when she is a real out there pull for Celine's inner circle. But it works really well. 
I'm not a big fan of Necrotia, the actual event in X-Force, as it plays out there. I do love the tie-ins. I think the legacy tie-in that Mike Carey does with Proteus is great. I think mm-hmm. that the Zabwell's tie-ins in New Mutants with Cypher are great. Oh, my God. And the Hellions, who I always love. Zeb is a favorite of mine right now. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm a stan. Hellions is my favorite book coming out of Marvel right now, easily. Same, same. So love those moments, but I also do really like the backup stories that give you how Celine seduces each of those four people into becoming her inner circle. And the best story of the four, in my opinion, is the Lois story, because we see that in the time since she parted ways with Allie, she has watched Allie's star rise again. She has watched Allie be this hero, and she has grown to hate. Yeah, more bitter. Allie. Yeah. And her horrible, abusive father, who she chose to stay with instead of going with Like, it's her own fault is the thing. The hatred of Allie is irrational. On the other hand, Allie did leave her there. Yeah. You know, and didn't fight her on it and didn't check in on her afterward. It's a great example of sometimes there are stories that we just don't worry about, right? And we don't think about them. But there's always potential to take a story like that and go, okay, well, if Allie never spoke to this girl again. What happened to her? What happened to her? Yeah. She works for her horrible dad until one day he just is drunk and flips out at her and she kills him instinctively in self-defense. And as he's dying, he's like, I love you. I love you. It's okay. I love you. Yeah. There's real drama there. Real drama. Yeah. There's real shit. And we haven't seen Allie really deal, because her father died back in the solo, Yeah, with her own issues with her parents. Yeah. And so the emphasis in that story on like, even if your father is abusive, you love your father, maybe. Yeah. You know, it's like tied up and it's complicated. They're still family, right? And even if he is an abusive shit, like accidentally murdering your father. It's still a hard way to go. Yeah. It's going to fuck you up. And so Celine, who's been posing as his secretary for who knows how long, just sort of walks in and is like, don't worry, it was good that you did this. He deserved it. They all deserve it. And you have the power to do it. And manipulates her into becoming Mortis. It also leads to the funniest scene from the X-Force Necrotia, which is when Diamond Lil from Alpha Flight charges into battle, even though people are like, Lil, don't do that. And Mortis just touches her and she dies instantly and just goes thud on the ground. It is one of the stupidest, most wonderful panels ever. I feel for Diamond Lil fans. I've never really been an Alpha Flight person, but it is very funny. I don't know if it was meant to be funny, but it's extremely funny. Then Mortis comes back in a Dazzler one-shot sort of spinning out of Necrotia. That issue, I think, is kind of interesting. It has Dazzler talk to her mother for the first time since that solo book. Her mother is basically like, all of this is my fault. I I wasn't a good mom, yeah. I wasn't a good mom. I was not a good mother. And Allie's like, yeah, like you weren't. But I love you and I will try to help Lois as much as I can. Lois teams up with Arcade and tries to have Allie killed, and more importantly, teams up with Claw. And Claw, of course, is an obscure villain from Avengers books, or Fantastic Fantastic Four. Four. Yeah, Fantastic Four. He's he's, he's mostly a Black Panther villain. They had him in the movie. Yeah. In name only, really. But they had uh, Andy Serkis play him in the movie. In the comics, he's a natural adversary for Allie because he's... Sound guy. He's made of sound. Yeah, he's made of solid sound, yeah. 
In her solo book, she accidentally killed him by absorbing him entirely into her body, which hypercharged her powers. And it was an ongoing plot point because she's accused of murder because of film footage. And she's like, I didn't do it on purpose. He's made of sound. I didn't know that. Why was how would I know that he was trying to kill me? He wants revenge. He's back. So he teams up with Mortis. It ends with Emma is like, I don't really want to mess with her head. And Betsy says, well, I'll do it. Because when even Emma is like, "Mm, I don't know. Betsy's like, oh, well, you know, (laughs) can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs, can we? So she says to Allie, I'll do psychic therapy with her. And Allie's like, thank you. And in part, again, that's because Allie and Betsy have been really close friends ever since the 80s. So it makes sense that Betsy would be like, I'll try. And that's the last we've seen of her. And that, I think, was 10 years ago. I would love, again, if Dazzler is on the X-Men team or winds up on some team, which I would love to see, I think that that character, particularly on Krakoa with Krakoa and Amnesty, is a character it would make a ton of sense to explore. Yeah. I think that if Zeb wants to shake up the Hellions at any point, the two characters who are the most obvious candidates for that, one who we've mentioned earlier... Mortis and Threnody, to me, are the two characters with real shit powers in the vein of Rogue, where it's like, Rogue, but worse. Yeah. And the powers have made them insane. And that's sort of the premise of Hellions, right? Is like, if your mutation is intrinsic to you, but it has made you a psychopath, shouldn't we be helping you? Because that's not your fault. Right. I think that that would be an interesting way to take the character. Now, Hellions isn't necessarily the most healthy place to take character, but... So here's the thing that might be interesting. Kanon is leading that squad, right? And Betsy was in Kanon's body when she did that psychic therapy with Lois. And they're both kind of the unsung sister, right? If you see Kanon as Betsy's doublet. I mean, that's what the current Hellions arc is literally about, is like Kanon in a nightmare where Betsy in Kanon's outfit is chasing her around as like a yokai. It's so fucking good. I fucking love that book. I just think that Mortis is a character with a lot of potential given that she's appeared like half a Zaladane, there just hasn't been a ton done there. And I think that more could be done. I'd be into that. I do think it's fun that Dazzler, who is this sunshiny character, has this goth dour sister. I think that that redesign of her when they brought her back from the solo was smart. I also think that the power redesign they did where now she has like a dark photonic aura Right. They did do that thing which used to just be the Summerses, but now they do it a lot where it's like Dazzler is immune to the death touch. The siblings' powers, yeah. I feel like writers don't understand that that isn't supposed to like be every mutant, but it's fine. It's whatever. I mean, within families, it makes sense. Yeah, but it used to just be the Summerses, and then it was also the Frost sisters, and now it's also the Blair London sisters. And I'm like, well, okay. It's good for these two characters in particular because if Lois could just touch Allie and kill her, then they're not going to have much time to work out their issues, right? So those are really my thoughts on that character. I think that she is an appealing... Counterpoint. Counterpoint to Allie, but hasn't been developed enormously because in part Allie hasn't been developed enormously in the last 20 years. So I think that if we're going to see Allie come to prominence again, which I hope we do, I loved the appearance of her condo in Wolverine recently where she's set up a security system that involves like holographic hard light dogs that attack. I miss that. It's cute. It's cute. And the Percy Wolverine It's worth checking out if you're a Dazzler fan. She's not in it, but like someone robs her house. (laughs) Krakoa welcomes on Twitter. It's a funny account if you don't follow it. Yes. Writes, 
two-part question when Dazzler is supercharged by Siren and blasts off fireworks at the end of House of X, that was pretty awesome, right? Yes, is the answer to that question. Follow-up question. In X-Factor 7, Dazzler said she's in a band with Siren now. Who else would you put in a band like that, taking into account best power synergies for best concert experience possible? Thanks, love the pod. I think that we should talk generally here about the potential for Dazzler's powers, because I think they're pretty vast. I know that Evan has a lot of thoughts on that. Yeah, I just, again, I think that one of the things that's so appealing to her as a character is this elemental kind of like purity of what she does. She takes sound, one form of energy and expression, and turns it into another, into light. And then you get all kinds of cool wrinkles like, oh, she's absorbing all the sound around her. Then uh, she's probably a really great stealth operative, right? You know, uh, you you combine that with the fact that, oh, she can blind people. I think she even did some kind of weird hypnosis at one point too with her powers, right? Mm-hmm. Not even to get into the AOA Dazzler, who we see is a human danger room and can create hard light holograms and shit. So there's a lot of potential there. Right, yeah. She's like a, a walking, talking holodeck, right? She can yeah. set up a whole experience by virtue of her powers. And that is our Dazzler, just in another timeline. So there's right. no reason why Dazzler's powers couldn't evolve to that extent if she trained them that way. Yeah, and, and then you get into the, like, you know... She can basically fire lasers from her fingers. She can blast light out of her eyes a lot of times. And she's just really cool. There's a lot of untapped potential there still for her. So yeah, I think her powers are really, really interesting. And there's so much you can do with them. I like the holograms a lot. I think that's really interesting and cool. Again, the the sound absorption into stealth is really cool. One of the things I liked from her early uh, appearances was the intimation that she's subly affecting the moods of her audiences through her light shows you know like when she gets possessed by malice after the x-men on the run from the marauders when she gets possessed by malice they're like oh yeah she's whipping this crowd into a frenzy like in a bad way so crowd control like a subtle psychic kind of consequence of her powers i think is really great so yeah tons of stuff to explore there and then you pair her up like again with Betsy, who's a, a natural born telepath, you know. Yeah. The potential for that stuff is really great. That's actually another place I wouldn't hate seeing Dazzler wind up if there's a shake up yeah, in X rosters yeah. is to see her go back to Excalibur. Dazzler actually was one of the characters Claremont initially in Claremont's first pitch for Excalibur, Dazzler and Longshot were supposed to go that way instead of going to the Outback. So, you know, she's a character who Excalibur was always more public-facing than the X-Men were. They became Britain's premier superhero team. I think that makes perfect sense for her. I think that while new Excalibur was weird, it did make sense for her as kind of an evolution of the character. And I think that she and Betsy have really great chemistry. So if, for example, Rogue or Jubilee in particular end up going to another book, like we don't know what's going to happen after this big X-Men roster shakeup. Right. So if they need a place to put Dazzler and it's not on the X-Men, I actually think Excalibur would be a fun place for her. She has history there. She would do cool mutant magic things, I'm sure. Yeah. Like, can you imagine Dazzler in Otherworld? Yeah, she's, she's that's the thing. She's a, a mood light, right? She's yeah, like, you, know, like you could do really she's fun light stuff therapy. There. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's a thought. In terms of who else I would put in her band, I mean, we've seen that she and Lila Cheney are going to be together in an X-Factor story coming up. DJ from the Academy X Kids is an obvious choice. Who else? I'm trying to think. Musicians. Musicians. Yeah, there are. I mean, I feel like Chamber was involved in the pop scene for a minute because he was dating Sugarcane. Oh, yeah. That human British pop star who thought it was exciting to be dating a mutant. I mean, Siren, again, is obvious. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, she needs something to do anyway because she's been having a, a bad 
time, time. for the last 15 years. I think that the idea of Allie and Lila and Siren as like a girl group is very funny. Like I said, Bling, I don't know enough about the character to know if she actually like sings herself, but she feels like a character you could throw in there. Maybe she could be like their tour manager or something. Like if she's not a singer herself, like you could do stuff. I think that that could definitely be a fun book. And if you ever want to reuse the Fallen Angels title, that would be a great name for a band. Just putting it out there. Yeah. Disc writes, good morning, Connor and Evan. My most extensive exposure to Dazzler was as a member of New Excalibur, a guilty pleasure book of mine that definitely raises more questions than it answers. I've brought two of those questions for your consideration today. One, New Excalibur established that Dazzler's biggest fan is the Juggernaut, but which other skin tights do you think collect her records? And two, while we're on the subject of things New Excalibur establishes, was Dazzler's immortality ever addressed or resolved? Surely it represents an issue for Kirkoan resurrection. Or is the whole thing just a huge dwy? Thank you for your time and for this podcast, Disc. Dwy is don't worry about it. It's become a catchphrase of the pod. So let's tackle the second one first. Dazzler's immortality plotline is an interesting one because it's something that Claremont introduced before he left the book the first time and that then was forgotten about because no one was using Dazzler. It could have just become one of those Claremont danglers that never gets resolved, but when he was writing New Excalibur, he brought it back in a big way. Successive writers have dealt with it a little. I think Kelly Thompson and G. Willow Wilson used it as a plot device in A-Force briefly. And when Dazzler was infected with M-Pox, which we're not going to get into because we don't talk about Inhumans versus X-Men on this podcast, she said that she was a little bit scared that she was going to die, but she also felt like, can I even die? Because it seems like maybe I can't. So I don't know really what's going on with me. So we've seen that alternate Dazzlers can die. Connor, I don't remember this. Please recap me. Why the fuck is Allison Blair immortal? So here's why Allison Blair is immortal. We don't know. Oh. But (laughs) there is an initial story. Brian Cronin dug into this on CBR, like, six or seven years ago but the big thing is it all starts in x-men annual 11 the one that i've talked about a few times on this podcast where the x-men are shown their heart's desires by this one-off villain called horde this is where we find out that storm's heart's desire is yukio it's where we find out that betsy's heart's desire is to become an unbreakable warrior it's where a lot of things that will carry through for these characters through the very end of the claremont run are first established in this 1987 annual Allie's is really interesting. Basically, she sees three potential paths for herself. One is as the pop star that she always dreamed of being the number one star in the world. One is as the lawyer that her father wanted her to be. And one is as a homeless bag lady. And in the end, Allie, who's sort of having a bit of a breakdown in this, like, it's a wonderful life montage she's experiencing, chooses the life of the bag lady. Because it would mean she would never again have to be afraid of messing it up. That's weird. What she says is, if I never take a risk, I'll never have to worry about making a mistake, failing, being hurt. There's safety in defeat, luxury in self-pity. Is that what I really want? And it seems like that's the one she's leaning toward when that aspect of it ends. So it's a very weird little thing. It's pretty dark. It gets into her psychology in a way that Claremont liked to do with these characters that a lot of people hadn't ever bothered to do, especially with this character who was often kind of a surface level character, as you've pointed out. 
Then there's this weird bit in Uncanny X-Men 246, which is two years later, where Dazzler looks into the Siege Perilous to see all of the potential futures that she might have if she stepped into the Siege Perilous and were judged. I vaguely remember this. The thing that she sees when she looks in is, again, the three women from the annual the lawyer, the pop star, and the homeless woman. And she watches them all die as homicide victims. Like they are all invariably murdered. And she is freaked out by that. She's like, this isn't fair. Why in every life would I die horribly? And the Siege Perilous projects kind of like a zombie Allison out and is like, foolish mortal, do you think you can flee your fate? It's this very, very weird issue. And this all happens because... (laughs) The reason this happens is because Claremont was planning to kill off the character at that time. What was going to happen was she was going to be sucked into the Siege Perilous. Something bad was going to happen to her, like in the following issue. He changed his mind, though, and it's Rogue who gets sucked into the Siege Perilous instead, and Dazzler blames herself. But that was sort of initially the idea, was that it was foreshadowing, and there had been a couple other hints that Dazzler had like a bad fate in store. Ahead of her, yeah. Yes. So... That is where it was going. Then Claremont does send her through the Siege Perilous in that final Siege Perilous story where Betsy convinces, because they've all been picked off one by one over the course of these issues, and Betsy has foreseen that the Reavers will murder them if they don't go through the Siege Perilous, which for all we know is like part of this Dazzler thing. Like, we don't really get it, right? But Betsy convinces Colossus and Dazzler to go through and then telepathically convinces Havoc to go through and then goes through herself. And then the Siege Perilous is destroyed by the Reavers. That is the end of her tenure in Claremont's run. She pops up again, like very much toward the end. So what happened was because Claremont left the book before he could resolve tie up whatever he was going to do with this weird interlude about Dazzler avoiding her fate and the Siege Perilous telling her in all destinies she dies tragically or whatever and her fighting against that somehow, it was dropped because Dazzler was dropped. And then in New Excalibur, when Claremont is writing the character again, he has her killed almost immediately by the Shadow X, the evil X-Men from an alternate world. And then inexplicably, she comes back to life. It's weird because Allison's like, I feel fine. I'm like, really? I'm okay. And the doctor is like, you just came back from the dead, Allison. Wouldn't you like to figure out why? Except the question is never answered. Black Tom Cassidy kills her again. She comes back to life again. She then gets killed again in the following issue. I forget how exactly. I'm just, she dies a bunch and she keeps coming back. The thing that happened there is that Claremont had a health issue in real life. Chris Yost took over New Excalibur for a little bit. And by the time Claremont came back, it just doesn't get addressed. Dazzler is then killed in X-Men Die by the Sword, which wraps up New Excalibur by Merlin and again comes back to life. And then she runs into Longshot. It all becomes about how Longshot has amnesia. And it has never, ever been explained since wow so that's it we don't know what the deal is it was introduced to new excalibur but it is drawing on the story from the 80s that implied allison was trying to escape her inevitable death 
in some cosmic mystical way involving the Siege Perilous. I have no idea what it's about. I have to assume, and here's the thing, with her showing up in X Factor, the same way that Leah Williams is tying up the Siren Morgan plot, I have to assume that in a book about the Resurrection Protocol, there's a plan for... A character who's been resurrected multiple times. Why Dazzler resurrects herself. There were theories that Dazzler could be the 11th external. Remember that? Oh, my Lord. we That's a plot we Dwight and then Teeny Howard shoved him into a rock and made it into a gate. So we don't have to worry about them ever again. But it's one of those dangling things in the X-Men that no one has ever known what to do with or has ever really explained. So the answer is, I don't know. No one knows except Chris Claremont. And he's not telling. And my guess is that someone else is going to have to tie that up. Speaking of old, weird storylines with Dazzler, I would be remiss if we don't talk about that weird stuff during Secret Wars 2. Go long on that right now. Do it. Okay, so for those of you guys who don't know, Secret Wars was Marvel's first big mega hit crossover, right? There was one that preceded it called Contest of Champions, but Secret Wars was a thing that kind of sets up the template for the Marvel version of the crossover events we all see uh, today, right? Um, There's a sequel called Secret Wars 2, where the central character from Secret Wars, the Beyonder, the Beyonder, this cosmic being decides he wants to experience human existence firsthand, creates a body of himself as a clone of Captain America, but then he gives, uh, he dyes the hair black and gives it a jerry curl and runs around in this Michael Jackson type outfit, circa 1980, whatever. But he decides, I'm the pinnacle of male human existence. Uh, who's the pinnacle of, hum- of female human existence? And he decides it's Dazzler. Dazzler. Who, again, you know, has been shown to be anything but a pinnacle. But Secret Wars 2 is written by Jim Shooter, the Marvel editor-in-chief, who was a key creator in Dazzler's uh, origin story. And still trying to make Dazzler happen. Right. He's, still, he's basically, you're right, he's trying to make Dazzler happen. <laughs> so, in Secret Wars 2, the Beyonder kind of brainwashes Dazzler to fall in love with him, turns her into a being of pure light, if I remember correctly. She becomes like a cosmic entity for a minute, yeah. Right. She freaks out and rejects that, and rejects him. He wipes her mind. He's like, okay, none of that happened, but he still goes around gallivanting with her to the point where he shows up in her solo book, still kind of like stalking her. It's not courting, it's not wooing, it's creepier than that. And... He creates these uh, supervillains that basically give her hell for, like, the entire issue. I think they were called the Outriders. There's this weird, like, um, punk-inflected, like, wasteland, Mad Max-influenced road warrior-type characters. Anyway, he shows up in a superhero costume that's really ugly and really bad and tries to, like, be a superhero with her. Because he's like, you've introduced me to the concept of satisfaction and you feel satisfied when you fight evil. So I created some evil for you to fight. It was just yeah. really, really creepy. So like, again, another in a long string of bad boyfriends, bad love interests for, for, for <laughs> Dazzler. The Beyonder is not really good for anybody. He actually, it's interesting because he, that's where Boom Boom comes in is with the Beyonder. And again, yeah. she and Dazzler are characters that I think have a lot of similar beats to them. But it makes sense that after Boom Boom's initial bad run in with the Beyonder, that the second time around when he's like, let's hit the big time, he goes after Dazzler. Like, it does make sense. It's so weird because the meta conceit is very apparent in Secret Wars 2, right? It's like, we have this big character Let's have him experience humanity and all this messiness. It wasn't as good as the first one. Let's just, I think, I think the record can stand on that. 
but you know, again, the fact that Dazzler gets wrapped up into this and this really from this really weird angle just shows how like she had this kind of utility for you know, I guess the creators of Marvel at the time, but like beyond that, there was no real championing or stewarding stewardship, I should say, for her. So I think, yeah, it's another weird outlier storyline for her. Yeah, it's very, very, very strange, and it's never been followed up on as far as I know. But it is worth noting that twice she has become a cosmic entity because she was the Herald of Galactus for a minute, and then she was a star child for a minute. One thing that I like about that is it's not unlike what Phoenix does to Mastermind in the Dark Phoenix saga. Yeah. But whereas it breaks Mastermind's mind entirely, Allie's just like, I don't like this at all. Yeah. <laughs> and not for nothing, if you had to explain away her immortality some way, that's the way I'd do it. Well, that's what I was just about to say is like, she has been empowered with cosmic energies enough times that you could come up with something that yeah. explains it. It yeah. doesn't necessarily have anything to do with her mutant power or anything else. It could just be that weird shit is happening. It could be a curse that Enchantress laid on her. Yeah. Like, there are all kinds of things it could be if you go into her long history as a non X Men related character, which is. The thing people don't realize because she has become so indelibly seen as an X-Men character, but she has this long, rich, weird history with all kinds of people in the Marvel Universe. Augustine Zuniga writes, The room goes dark and deadly still. Then the house band starts a pounding rhythmic intro, and she is there! Dear Connor and bedazzling guests, thank you for getting together and talking about the fabulous disco queen Alison Blair. Who would you cast? I nominate Janelle Monae for her stellar acting and singing, her Make Me Feel song and music video, which is the bi-representation I want and her ability to produce music that sounds very mutant. What do you think of a non-white actress playing her? Always thanks for the podcast. Kind regards to both Connor and Evan. I have seen the Janelle Monae fan cast many, many times, including in the replies to this episode's announcement, and I fully get it, and I don't doubt that Janelle Monae would do a great job in the role because she's a great actress and a great singer and a great musician. I, much like with Robin, think that Janelle Monet is a little too out there out there for yeah, Dazzler yeah. because I think Dazzler's music is very mainstream pop. Yeah, both those artists are very experimental in nature. I think it could be an artsy kind of pop. Like, I could see a Lady Gaga kind of thing. Yeah. I've said in previous episodes that I feel conflicted about race bending in the mcu not because i'm opposed to the practice generally but because i think that it prevents the characters in the comics who are actually black or people of color from becoming higher profile characters yeah this came up in the rogue episode and i said i'd honestly rather see them make monet a big mcu character than see them cast a black woman as rogue because then monet in the comics would get a push it's things like that like for the synergy look at what's happening with valkyrie the Tessa Thompson Valkyrie was so popular that they killed off Brynhilda and they're introducing a black Valkyrie. Right. 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 So it can happen. I just tend to think it's not the right choice because it creates the illusion of diversity in the tie-ins. Yeah. But doesn't actually impact the comics at all. Yeah. You center the characters who come from marginalized backgrounds to begin with, I think. Right. Like, I'd rather see Frenzy and Monet and other black women in the X-Men comics get to be a big part of those movies than see characters who are going to continue to be presented as white in the comic become the diverse member of the team in the movie, because then it doesn't help. But But I think if there's one character you might want to do it with, it's Dazzler. Yeah. Brings it full circle. And in that case, if we're going to cast an actual musician who is contemporary... I would cast Dawn Richard. I don't know her. She was in Danity Kane. Oh. 
Oh. Yeah. She went solo. She is a little more artsy in that kind of Robin way, but she, I think, threads the needle sort of Lady Gaga style. Like, Right, right. Man, you know... <sighs> I was going to say Janelle Monet, but again, I do agree with you. I think it would be good. I just like, yeah. to me, it's, I'd like to see Janelle Monet as Lila Cheney, frankly. <laughs> like, I think yeah. she would kill that. You know what I mean? Because Lila's edgier. Like, it has yes. that. Yeah. Like, Dazzler's so top 40. Right. She's never been edgy. Man. I keep on thinking about Beyonce, but, you know, like, who's the younger equivalent of Beyonce? Not Solange. Listen, if you want to keep her young, I feel like you could cast Normani Corday. Yes. You know? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I love yeah. her and she's but like that's very young. Again, and I tend to think Dazzler should be an older character. Like, uh, Don Richard is in her late thirties. Like that's okay. where I think we should yeah. be aiming. Yeah, that's the vibe. That's the vibe. I'm I'm not familiar with her work musically, but like in terms it's of cool. Like, I'll send you some stuff. Uh, thank you. <laughs> but but uh in terms of like, yeah, if we're talking about a character who the arc we've been talking about over this episode is like she's a pioneer, right? She's a groundbreaker. Right. And so she's a little bit older, I think that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, but I do think this is the one real exception I do have to that point. Like, here's a actually a really great example, given characters we were just talking about earlier. There was a lot of talk when they were casting Carol Danvers, they should cast a black woman as Carol Danvers in honor of Monica Rambo or whatever. I think for Monica, it's been way better that they didn't do that and instead yeah. actually used Monica Rambo, who now yeah. has been trending on Twitter. And I used to be the person reading my dad's 80s comics and trying to explain to people that the best Avenger was Monica Rambo. And now, like, random non-nerds have yeah. heard of this character yeah. and I bet you she's going to have a book real soon. You know what I mean? Whether yeah. it's on a team or I would like to see her as like the non-mutant ally on the sword station because we know Ewing yeah, loves her. writes yeah. the shit out of that character. Yeah. So, yeah. but I'm just saying that character is about to get a push the likes of which she has never had before. I guarantee. Yeah, There's better. merch. There's Monica Rambo merch. Yeah, We've never had Monica Rambo no, merch. It's so wild. So that's yeah. the thing. I, I typically, even if it is in something like WandaVision, which isn't like, it's not like they made Photon or Spectrum the movie. Right. But who knows? Maybe we'll get there. Like that's, you know. I mean, you know, Nia DaCosta's uh, directing Captain Marvel too. And I have to imagine that having Nia DaCosta in charge of that movie means that they're aware of the importance of Monica to that franchise. We know she's going to be in the movie. Like they hired a black woman director. I feel good about Monica's future. And if it had just been, we cast a black woman as Carol. That's an everybody loses scenario, right? Right. Because then, first of all, you're left with the fact that the Carol in the comics is a white woman. And that's not changing anytime soon. And that's never going to change. Yeah. And you're also left with the fact that if there was a black Carol Danvers, I doubt they ever would have used Monica Rambeau. Right. Right. So that's where I tend to fall in it. I will say the one exception I do feel is Dazzler. And now, if they cast a white Dazzler, I don't think that's like offensive or problematic. But I do think this would be a good opportunity to go full circle with the character's origins. And there are so many brilliant Black female artists that you could do the exact kind of thing that Marvel once tried to do with Dazzler with. You could put out an album in character. You could do... A TV show that's a musical. You could do all kinds of stuff. And so I think that someone like Normani would be great if you want to go young. Or you could do someone a little older if you want to go with a Dazzler. Oh, what about um, Chloe and Halle? They would also be great if you want to go young. Yeah. 
And isn't one? Isn't Halle Bailey about to be Ariel in The Little Mermaid for That's Disney? Right. Yeah, so yeah, clearly yeah. they're very aware of her. Yeah. yeah so yeah. if that movie does well, I wouldn't be shocked to see her hop into the Marvel Cinematic. Like that's sort of how it happens, right? Yeah. Is like yeah. you become known to the corporate powers that be, and yeah. then they suggest you for things. Right. Right. Yeah, but it's weird because I think again, everything we're talking about is subtext, right? For Allison as a character. Like the kind of cultural reservoir that she's drawn off of, you know, that's all subtext. And I feel like, again, to make it, to race bend her in the movies would just present you with this weird dissonance between the source material and it. Well, right. The problem then is, I will say, the character I think in the X-Men who has been most stymied by this problem is Magma. Oh, yeah. Because Magma, and we'll get into this someday in episode 500 of this podcast, that's the Magma episode. If you're not familiar with Magma, which you have no reason to be familiar with Magma, the premise of Magma is that she is a white woman from a long-lost ancient Roman colony in the Brazilian jungle created by Celine. She's Celine's granddaughter. It's complicated. The problem is that it means that the most prominent Brazilian female character at Marvel is this white woman who's never been to Brazil. It's a very weird character that they've never known what to do with. And then in X-Men Evolution, the cartoon, they just made Magma a brown girl from Brazil. And people loved the character because Magma's power signature and power set are very cool. Yeah. Then people went to the comics like, where's Magma? And it was just this weird blonde girl. Who's this white girl? Yeah. And not even like a white Brazilian. Like she's not Sky Ferreira. Yeah. She's just this white girl who's blonde and like acts like a haughty princess because she was a haughty right. noblewoman right. of Nova Roma. So Magma is a character where people are like, isn't there some way we can just kill her off and replace her with the X-Men Evolution Magma? That is the problem you run into. Nick Fury had this problem. Yeah. Once the Samuel L. Jackson Nick Fury became the Nick Fury everybody knew, white guy daddy Nick Fury with his silver temples and whatever, yeah. who I was very enamored with as a small child yeah. because just look at him. They had to replace him because anybody picking up the comics was just like, who is this grizzled white man who's not Samuel Jackson being funny? Yeah, or smooth, yeah. Or smooth or cool. Or, like, because the Samuel Jackson Nick Fury, you absolutely could write that character as sexy too. And they did in the Ultimate Universe where he was black. Just a different vibe. Right. Comics Nick Fury was like sort of like an American James Bond with everything yes, that that would so. entail. Like, yeah. he's a womanizing, sexy weirdo, but like he has this super butch American thing right, that's very right. different from... Yeah. And then the Samuel L. Jackson, what he's like, he's kind of a jokester. He's funny. He's smooth. It, yeah. it draws on. It's drew a little bit on Samuel L. Jackson's portrayal of Shaft in that remake of yeah. Shaft, right? Yeah. So what they ended up doing in the comics was introducing Nick Fury's illegitimate son, who's half black. Yeah. Who then takes the name Nick Fury Jr. and replaces Nick Fury as the director of S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah. It's... And so now, if you're a new reader, Nick Fury is just a black guy and you don't have to worry about it. But they had to go through this whole tortured thing and junk the previous character with the previous character's history in order to bring that in line with the comics. So that's why I think they're unlikely to do that again. Yeah. Especially with a character that has a lot of history. And so the issue with doing it with Dazzler, while I think, again, if you're going to do it with anyone, this is for sure, as we're saying, the character to do it with, then you get stuck with White Dazzler in the comics, and what do you do with her? Right. Right. Yeah. Because then you have fans like, where's Black Dazzler's comic? Right. And the answer is, we don't have Black Dazzler in the comics, we have White Dazzler. Yeah, it can be really tricky, you know, again, to have two wildly divergent 
versions of a character like that, especially in terms of like, you know, skin color, and then expect people to think it's the same character. Yeah, it's just a branding concern, like just in terms of cold, hard reality, like it's a branding concern. And it also just it creates awkwardness for the character. The way you could do it is like I was just talking to someone. I was saying the new Batwoman character that's black, they're not yeah. going to get rid of Kate Kane because Kate Kane's an enormously popular character in those comics. And just because an actress left a show, right. they're not going to get rid of that character. However, the new black Batwoman character, Ryan Wilder, I think is yeah. her name, mm-hmm. she's taking off and is pretty popular. So I am sure they're going to find a different costumed identity for her to have so that she can be in the comic book. Right. So it's like, you know... So you could have Black Dazzler in the movie and then introduce, like, Dazzler's friend who's that character. That's what they're kind of doing with Valkyrie, right? I think so. But it's it's awkward. It's a little tortured. You know, some characters, their heroic identities are mantles to be passed down, right? Like we're talking about, like, right. you know, Batman, Spider-Man, for example, you know. Yeah. But some characters are their powers. They are their identities. Dazzler is Allison Blair, you know? Yeah. And it would be hard to have two Dazzlers. You can have two Spider-Man. Like, Miles Morales can exist in a world with Peter Parker. They've proven that. Yeah. It's awkward codename-wise that they're both... It's the same problem they're now having with Logan and Laura, because Logan was dead, so they let Laura be Wolverine, and now it would feel weird to make Laura be X-23 again, but it's weird that they're both Wolverine, right? Because that's very DC. Like, you'll have, like, multiple flashes or whatever. Marvel doesn't really do that. Yeah. And never really has. So, I think... With Dazzler, it would be tricky because, yeah, her brand is as Dazzler. You'll notice in this episode, I keep calling her Dazzler. Most episodes, I call the characters, like, people have pointed this out. I talk about them like they're my friends. So I'm like, and then Lorna and Alex do this. Like, I'm not using code names. But it's hard not to call her Dazzler because that is, like, right. the brand, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, like, having mini Dazzler, who's, like, Chloe Bailey, it would be hard to have them both be called Daz. There's just a lot of considerations. And I'm I'm just thinking about it realistically because you know that the corporate would be thinking about it in terms of the IP. Connor, we haven't talked about that little Easter egg in um which X the new X-Men movie. Dark Phoenix. Yes. It's it, it's blink and you'll miss it. But it's like, blink and you'll miss it. I don't care for those movies particularly, so I, I yeah, I barely watched them myself. Yeah. So. But that was cute. Yeah. It was cute. I mean, it's wild that it's taken so long to put Dazzler 40 in Forty some odd years, yeah, yeah. When the whole point of her was, was to be in a creating movie in a character to put in yeah. a movie, yeah, yeah. It's really yeah. crazy. But so that's to go to to bring it all back in. This is the one character where I think that Rizbenda makes a ton of sense. But as I've said before, I think that it would be at the expense of black characters in the comics who I think you could push. Yeah. So it's a complicated question. And in terms of who I would cast, I think you have to cast someone who actually can sing because you do want to do the album. You want to do the whole thing. And I think it would be a great Disney Plus show. I really do. Yeah, I agree with that. You could make it Marvel's answer to the comeback with Lisa Kudrow. Yes. Like you could do a really funny like Dazzler's comeback album show. And part of it could be her revealing herself as a mutant. And you could establish that Dazzler is an existing pop artist right. who had a big hit and now is sort of not going anywhere and you know what i'm gonna do to get yeah. back on top publicist i'm like, gonna come gotta... out as a mutant yeah. yeah like that people magazine cover like you know surprise <laughs> i'm gay but it's mutant like right. that's yeah. what you know that's what you could do and it would be really funny and again you don't make her a joke but you make the circumstances around her a joke right. because sure. show business is funny it's just oh, intrinsically bizarre and hilarious yeah 
Cyan Nim asks a related question, which is just, if Dazzler had been black like they originally intended, how do you think she would have evolved? And who would she be today? Wow. I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. Because that's a, I mean, it's a loaded question. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a... It's such a what if, you know? I was gonna say, it's a what if, yeah. You know, I hate to say it, but I feel like she probably would have had an even more spotty publication history than she has already. You know, like yeah, I agree. Black characters in in Marvel, like again, they really need good stewards, people to shepherd them and champion them, so they don't disappear out to the fringes. Again, Black Panther is a perfect example here. Like he was, you know, one of the first major black superheroes in the world, and in Marvel particularly, and he disappears for like a long part of his publication history. And I think Dazzler would have been the same thing. She would have been more other, you know. Yeah. She would have been more other in a way that provides a lot of story potential, but like, unless you feel passionate about exploring that story potential, she would have been cast off, I think. Yeah, I think they would have tried to take her in maybe a Whitney Houston-ish kind of direction or yeah. something. I think that the problem is, as we've said, that as hard as it was for any disco artist to survive the end of disco, black women in disco really were not allowed to transition into regular pop in the same way. I mean, Grace Jones became an actress, which actually is what Dazzler ends up doing in her solo, right? right? But Vixen, I actually think, is a really good counterpoint. It's DC, but it's around the same time, and they were going to push her as this big character, and then they just didn't. Didn't, yeah. Yeah. I feel like it would be a very similar... I mean, actually, the real example at Marvel is Monica Rambeau. Yeah. Monica Rambeau was the chairwoman of the Avengers yeah. in the 80s. Monica Rambeau was a big... Big character. splash of debut. Yeah. They gave her the name Captain Marvel, which was an important brand identity for Marvel. They were in a dispute constantly with the Shazam yeah. stuff at DC about yeah. who got to be the trademarked Captain Marvel. So it was in part because they needed to keep the brand in circulation, but... They did it by creating this black woman superhero who was given a very prominent role. And then once her shepherd left the book or was taken off the book, Grunewald depowered and wrote her out in like three issues in a violent way. And she never came back until next wave because Warren Ellis was like, who are some Avengers no one has used in 15 years? And she was popular in that book. I loved her in that book, but it wasn't. But she was kind of written like, you know. As a joke. Yeah. She was like, I was an Avenger. I led the Avengers. Because next wave, everybody is a joke. Yeah. It at least brought the character back into circulation, but it wasn't until Al Ewing wrote her in Ultimates and those stories that- Yeah, I it was Mighty like, Avengers before that and then yeah, the one, Yeah, yeah they all evolved into like one kind right. of long right. arc. I don't think anybody really was checking for that character. Well, it's funny because you mentioned that she disappeared. I'll never forget there was one- Solo Avengers was a title they had where they would do like one-offs mm-hmm. with Avengers characters. And Dwayne McDuffie wrote yeah. a Monica story. Which is great. If you're a Monica fan, look that up. It's a great story. Yeah, yeah. She had natural, she had twists. Mm-hmm. And again, he or his editors made a point of bringing her back, you know? Because again, to champion a character, you need that internally. And I feel like if Dazzler was black from the outset... She wouldn't have had that kind of stewardship that she needed. I think Claremont would have been invested in the same way because we know for all his faults, Claremont is someone who definitely wanted to push black women characters in comics. I mean, between Storm and Misty Knight and Stevie Hunter. Yeah. It was something that he was interested in. And I think that he would have been interested in that. But I think it would have... 
I mean, she already fell off so hard the minute he was off the book. I yeah. just can't imagine. If you look at what happened to characters like Threnody, like in that period, there was an attempt. Let's introduce some black women into the X-Men. Cecilia Reyes. Yeah. Late 90s. And Claremont loved her, too, actually. She's one of the only characters Claremont didn't create that he uses all the time whenever right. he gets to write the X-Men again. Reyes, in part because her deal was, I don't want to be a superhero. That's like her whole motivator, right? Right, right. But still, she's a character who actually was pretty popular, made kind of a splash. Of all the late 90s editions, I would say she and Marrow are the only two that really ever developed fan bases. Right. She got written out real fast. Like, that is kind of what happens to... A lot of characters, particularly to female characters, and particularly to black female characters. Very true. Yeah. Probably would have happened to Dazzler, too. I think it would have. But it would have been interesting to see the way that her look evolved over time from the Disco Queen to the present, because it would have presumably used different pop culture touchstones. So that would have been interesting. But that's assuming that anyone ever used the character again, you know? And I'm not confident that her solo would have gone 42 issues. I'm not confident Shooter would have pushed the character as hard. I'm not confident she ever would have made it to the X-Men because I'm pretty sure that was Shooter's suggestion, right? I mean, the initial plan, this is one we haven't even talked about. Initially, Bob Layton had pitched her to be the girl on X-Factor. Yes. Yeah. Before they decided to bring back Jean. Yeah. That's a whole other road not taken that could have been crazy. I mean, the world in which Claremont wins out and they don't bring back Gene is a completely different yeah. world of yeah. the X-Men. Yeah. And in that, Dazzler would have been palling around with the O5, probably dating Warren more consistently. Yeah. All of that. But stuff. Hank was on the same team, too. So that was I know. So yeah. who? Right. Torn between two X-lovers. That could right. have been fun, right? People always think that sounds insane, like why Dazzler? But if you look at her solo book, it actually makes sense because at the same time, they had these disused O5 X-Men characters and were like, what do we do with them? They were in the Defenders and they would show up in books like Dazzler. Right. So she had the pre-existing connections with those two characters and it would be easy enough to throw her and Iceman and Cyclops together as well in whatever scenarios. She had met Cyclops in the Dark Phoenix saga. Like, yeah, it all could have built out. That would have been that would have been crazy, but it was not to be. So that's, I guess, the answer is, unfortunately, I think Evan is right. And she just would have been diminished way faster. And I'm glad that we're in a time when they can announce a book like X-Corp with a black female lead and people are, are excited about it. Yeah. It's good that we are in that place now. But in 1982. Well, I don't, yeah, I don't think that was. Marvel, yeah, though. it was just a different marketplace. Caleb Dennis writes, Hello, Connor and Evan. First, let me say I'm a huge fan of the pod. It arrived at the perfect time to fan the flames of my burgeoning X fandom. Well, you're welcome, and I'm sorry. <laughs> Hope you survive the experience. Hope you survive the experience. My question is in regards to Dazzler's introduction in the midst of the Dark Phoenix saga. How do you think the character's popularity has been influenced by her intro being set in the middle of one of the most well-known storylines in all of comics history? I think it's actually really essential. Yeah, she would not have survived. Not at all. Yeah, without that that interaction with the X-Men during that extremely fertile period of yeah. the Claremont run. Yeah. And the fact that it's the story, much like you were saying, you read that reprint of it. One of the first trades I had was Dark Phoenix Saga. If you are 
an X-Men fan and this was before we could read everything in digital or whatever, one of the first stories you're going to encounter is the Dark Phoenix saga and Dazzler makes a very splashy entrance in it. Yeah. That's why every time they've adapted it, there have been speculation. Is Dazzler going to be in the movie or whatever? Because she's part of that original story in the same way that Emma and Kitty are. They're not part of the really famous stuff on the moon where Phoenix dies. But they are part of the beginning of the story. When everybody starts to worry about, hey, uh, what's this Gia's power kind of out of control, yeah. isn't she? Yeah. Huh? Yeah. That's all predicated on the story surrounding Kitty and Dazzler, who are the two newly awakened mutants that Emma and Charles are both trying to locate. So I think that that is pretty essential. I think a lot of her staying power owes to the fact that she is tied to that iconic storyline. In the same way that... That Kitty is, you know? Yeah, in the same way that Kitty is, in the same way that Emma is. Like, those characters always turned back up, in part because they launch with the biggest story that most people know. And the reason I think that's important is because it's high drama, you know? All these characters have really intense high drama inside their, like, core notional paradoxes, right? Like, with Mm -hmm. Kitty, it's like, I thought I was normal, I'm not, I'm young, I'm not ready... I'm unprepared, you know, do I pass still? Right. All that stuff, right? With Emma, it's the clear kind of like evil version of Professor X. Yeah. You know, more so than Sebastian Shaw, right? Way more. She's the teacher. She's a teacher. She's a telepath. They make a bold entrance. And similarly, Dazzler is the character, in contrast to Kitty, who really wants to be an X-Man. Dazzler is the character who they try to recruit. And she's like, I'm good, actually. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to do this, this disco star thing. Yeah, so I think that's part of the reason that energy, all that melodramatic energy from that storyline was found really sympathetic vessels within those characters. Mm-hmm. One thing I do think, I was looking back at a lot of these early stories and her solo book and all of that in advance of this episode. I don't like that ever since she dropped the pink hair after New Excalibur and she came back in Fraction, she's just been a regular blonde. Yeah. And there are so many regular blondes in comics yes. in every story before that she's a strawberry blonde she's like a redhead yes, yes. they need yeah. to f- go back to that because it made her visually distinctive in a way that now when there are all the cuckoos and emma and other characters yeah, standing around blondes. so many blondes yeah give her just it's just like a red rinse like just it's a little <laughs> bit it's like a pale orange color Amanda Sefton is another one who keeps getting stuck with just like blonde. When yes. it's like, no, that's she's a strawberry blonde. That's a redhead. I'm texting with my friend Charles. You know Charles. I know Charles. He said uh, we're talking about Daz, where he's like somewhere. Uh, Doja Cat's ears are burning. <laughs> I mean, listen, I wouldn't hate that. Yeah, she could be an interesting. I enjoy Doja Cat. I don't know enough about all of the complicated stuff around Doja Cat to offer a deeper opinion. Than I only know a little bit of it myself. So yeah. I enjoy her music. I know there was something about showing feet in a chat room. I don't, you know, whatever. But I do think it's cool that she's the first black Jewish woman to be number one on the Billboard chart. I enjoy that. That's just a cool factoid, I guess. The, yeah. the first guy was probably Drake, right? Uh, I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Jew of color representation is an important thing, and I'm always pro that. Uh, Anyway, point is, that would be fun. That is a fun choice. I mean, I think Megan the Stallion would be an incredible dazzler. Like, if you make her a rapper, like, you could do lots of... If you don't care about the genre, you could do lots of things. Yeah. But I do think that Dazzler, given her name and everything, just... Nightclubs. Is a dance dance pop musician. Yeah, Yeah, dance pop. Our last question comes from Justin Park. 
who made some very cute little graphics for my birthday today on Twitter. He's a loyal listener. He made, it's that picture from the annual where Amanda Sefton's introduced, actually. The Nightcrawler's birthday annual where they all yeah. get sucked into hell by Margali Sardish. Yes. And he unwraps a present from Wolverine. It's a framed picture of Wolverine. Yeah. Justin did two edits. One, it's a picture of Zaladane, which made me laugh. And one, it's a picture of Madeline and Alex in their goblin regalia. Oh, yeah. Like, she's yeah, touching yeah. his titty. I do love that panel as a Maddie and Alex head, which is part of why Hellions is my top book. Yes. Yeah. I fucking love that book. Zeb gets Alex, thank God, because no one has in a very long. Alex is a character like Dazzler that after Claremont was just yeah. in hell yeah. for a really long time. <laughs> I didn't mind the, him, his, Peter David in the X Factor. It was fine. It was fine. Yeah. yeah. It's fine. But he's a reluctant hero, you know? Yes. And they went weird places with that. In any case. Justin writes, Hi, Connor and Evan. Evan, I'm so thrilled you're the next guest on my favorite podcast. I'm a huge fan of your work from Rise of the Black Panther to Miles Morales. On a personal note, I read your essay, The Natural, The Parameters of the Afro, in my final year of university when I was still unsure about pursuing a career in video game development. Wow. And it was really comforting to know that there were, in fact, like-minded progressive people in the industry. So thank you for that and for all the work that you do. Thank you, Justin. That's uh, very appreciated. My question, unfortunately, isn't Dazzler-specific, but given the interdisciplinary expertise in this episode, I'd love to hear both of your thoughts on X-Men video game adaptations. Do you have any personal favorites or recommendations? If you were to make one yourself, what kind of genre of game would you pick and what characters would you want to spotlight? Thanks again, Justin. So I thought that was a fun question to wrap on. Wait a minute. I'm having weird vestigial memories. Wasn't Dazzler one of the playable characters in that stand-up game? So that was what I was about to say. Is yeah. Obviously, one of the best X-Men video games of all time is that Konami arcade game that I used clips from in the intro music to this show, in which Dazzler is one of the playable characters because it's based on Pride of the X-Men, which we haven't right. mentioned yet, but which is the way most 90s kids, I would say, had any idea who the fuck Dazzler was. Yeah. Pride of the X-Men was the first attempt at the X-Men animated series. It's a failed pilot that was not picked up. Dazzler is one of the main X-Men in it. She is fucking awesome. She's shooting laser beams. She's the tough broad on the team. She's written like very Claremont Dame, like in that way. And Storm is written very much as like 70s Storm, not punk Storm. So she's like the elements and whatnot, which, you know, would happen again in the 90s cartoon. But Dazzler is the character who's there to be like, she's kind of a Dazzler rogue Psylocke hybrid. Like she's the bitch and it's good. I loved Pride of the X-Men as a kid. It also features Emma Frost. It was like a little gay boy's dream. How did you even watch it? It was on VHS. Right, because I remember in the convention circuit, you could buy it like on VHS. I had it on VHS. But it was never officially released as as far as I remember. No, it was on TV sometimes. They would rerun it on occasion. But I had it as a VHS because I was like, X-Men! And then the Konami game, that's where I first saw Dazzler, outside of Dark Phoenix Saga, where she's Silver Disco Dazzler. Yeah. The first place I saw 80s Dazzler in the blue costume with the headband and the starburst yeah. was in that game. And it was wild because by the time it came out, the X-Men animated series was like yeah. popping and Dazzler was nowhere to be seen. She makes like two cameo appearances in that in Mojo related storylines, I think, because she's with Longshot. So that is just an interesting relic in the sense that Dazzler is a character that a lot of people have heard of purely because of that video game. Yeah. Which is wild to think about. That one's great. I would choose her or Storm. If someone was already picking Storm, I would pick Dazzler. But I also often found myself switching to Dazzler midway through the game because I found that Storm's 
tornado power required more precision yeah. to aim. Dazzler would just drop a bomb and it would explode. And so I, as like a child who was not particularly good at the video game, found that a lot easier to use. That was awesome. Dazzler's awesome in that game. So video game wise, I'm a JRPG girl and a fighting game girl. Those are like my genres. I'm not yeah. very good at adventure games or any platforming or anything like that. So I don't really play those. I'm like a Mortal Kombat gay. I'm a Street Fighter gay. I'm a King of Fighters gay. I would love a real ass like X-Men fighting game. Like I, yes. I had Next Dimension and those and things back in the day. Oh my Lord. Yeah, which were not great games, but they were fun to have because it was the X-Men. If you gave someone like NetherRealm, who do the Injustice games, yeah. like this IP, or like, I mean, the dream would be like, give it to Arxis, like let them do a Marvel yeah. vs. Capcom type 2D beautiful game. Like the Marvel vs. Capcom games, X-Men vs. Street Fighter, Marvel Superheroes vs. Street Fighter, Marvel vs. Capcom, the 2D ones from back yeah. when I was a kid. Yeah. I never got that into three because by that point I was a little older and wasn't playing a ton of console games. And also it was so not the way it was set up. It didn't feel like a Capcom game anymore. The way the buttons work. Yeah. It's almost Guilty Gear-esque. Like there's like a special button and it's like, right. I liked the like six button Street Fighter Darkstalkers thing. Setup, that was yeah. like my setup. It's like that or Mortal Kombat. Like I want one or the other. KOF is close enough that I can make it work with the Street Fighter brain. But I would love that. I would love a game that is just like, here's like 50 X-Men characters and they will fight each other in a fighting game. I think that would be so, so much fun. Okay, again, I'm not a JRPG fan by any stretch of the imagination, but something like the Persona series... That'd be awesome. You just map the X-Men mythology over that kind of mechanical template. Seems like it just would be a natural fit, right? Like... Yeah, and also, like, the way that those games are day-in-the-life school games. Yes. You could do that with, like, a Kitty or Jubilee-type character. Right, right. Or even, like, the adults, like Storm or Wolverine, who are teachers. And, you know, like, yeah. by day they're doing this, by night they're doing other stuff. Yeah, have different chapters where you're playing as a different character. Yeah. I never played those X-Men Legends games. Speaking of Magma, who we talked about earlier, they made her like a main character in those. Yeah, I, I didn't play them either. I didn't play those. I know that people really love them, but I never, I just never played them. Because again, those adventure game type things, I'm really like, if it's not a JRPG or a fighting game, I just don't really play it, if I'm being real. I love a Persona game. I love a Final Fantasy. At times, depends. Like, I pick and choose. We could talk yeah. about it some other time. I would literally kill someone to revive Suikoden as an IP. Those are my childhood favesies. But I mean, for me, my brain just goes to fighting game immediately because the characters are so fun. Yeah. I had a Sega Saturn modded with a memory cartridge so that I could play the arcade perfect Japanese import version of X-Men versus Street Fighter. Wow. So that's my answer to that, I guess. Again, we've established that I'm mad old during the course of this episode, but there was that Sega Genesis Mega Drive for those of you outside the US, but there was an X-Men game on that. Yeah. Zaladane is the boss of the first level. Actually. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and I used to play Nightcrawler in that so much. But yeah, like I think a game where you have to play the team, right? You know, yeah. like the, the, the it's it's like a multi-character. You need something that allows for like 30 playable characters yes. is the thing. That's yeah, why yeah. what you're saying about Persona where it's like you recruit different Personas into your team or like something like that. Like you need something that lets you flip between all 50 X-Men that you could have. Yeah, but you know, it's funny. I feel like uh, the X-Men are one of the great untapped 
Yeah, because for 20 years, the rights were tied up with a company that wasn't doing much with them outside of film right. and action figures. So, so video games, you know, are definitely overdue for like a revisitation of the X-Men. And I'm sure that's part of Disney's huge reintroduce the X-Men plan, right? Like, I'm sure that that is a prong in their strategy. Well, Evan, thank you so much for being my guest. Do you have anything you'd like to talk about before we start to wrap up with regard to Alison Blair? I just think she's a great character. You know, I just think she has all the ingredients that make her ripe for being reinterpreted, recontextualized without invalidating her past publishing history. You know, I think that all that interesting backstory could make for great fodder for new stories, for a new direction for her. So I just, you know, I hope... Again, we've been talking about champions and stewards this whole episode. I think I hope somebody takes up her her cause. Well, I would love to see you write something. <laughs> I'm just putting it out there. One of the things I like to do on this podcast is bring people on and then tell them which characters they should write. You know, I don't even know if I'm the guy. I love her, but you know, like I don't even know if I'm the guy because all the stuff we've been talking about, like I'm an old man who's <laughs> raising a kid now. Like I'm not into like no, that's what's fair. hot on the charts. That's fair. You that's know, you fair. need somebody who's better aligned with i think the nightclub nightlife scene but you know i whoever that person is i would cheer them on i'm excited to see where the character is going i have a hunch that maybe she'll be on the x-men team i hope i'm right we'll find out in june if not i would love to see her in a book like x-factor or excalibur written by a millennial woman who gets the character but also adjacent to the character she has pre-existing relationships to, yeah. Yeah, coexisting with characters we know that she loves and cares about. I think that would be really fun. Well, why don't you tell the listeners where they can follow you online and talk about any projects you'd like to plug? Well, you can find me on Twitter at Evnark. That's the main place to engage with me online. But I'm, I'm, I don't spend a lot of time on Twitter because I value my mental health. You can read Rise of the Black Panther, which came out a few years ago from Marvel. It's a WWE New Day graphic novel that I co-wrote with Austin Walker, which uh, should be coming out this year. I'm working on a bunch of video game and animation stuff I can't talk about now, but um, there should be an announcement this week about one of them. Exciting. And you were in Marvel's Voices, right? Yes. in Marvel's. I was in the first edition of Marvel's yeah. Voices. I wrote a, a quick Brother Voodoo, Dr. Voodoo, Jericho Drum one-pager because I had to represent my Haitian superhero brother. I love Marvel magic stuff. Those are all characters. Talk about potential that's never really been explored. Yeah, Yeah. that's a dream project for me one day. Like, what's Jennifer Kale up to? Like, you know, there's all kinds of characters just hanging out in limbo. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes literally in limbo. That would be fun to do stuff (laughs) with. Exactly, yeah. But yeah, that's mostly where you can find uh, my stuff. Oh, I I co-hosted the first season of Marvel's Declassified podcast with Lorraine Sink, and we talked to a bunch of great creators about the stories they did for Marvel. Um, Definitely check that out. It's going to wide release soon, I believe. They may be announcing that this week. So that's where you can find me. Lots going on. If you are a video game person and you have not played the Miles Morales Spider-Man game on PS4 and now PS5, that is a great way to get a healthy dose of Evan Narcisse's work, including an Easter egg about Dazzler in one of the side missions. So that's worth checking out. I am unfortunately really bad at games like that. So I have never, I've watched People play it, and I'm like, I would really be bad at this, so I have never played it. You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at Cerebrocast. You can follow me on Twitter at Dream of Organon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes and transcripts as I get them up, as well as a link to the Cerebro fan Discord server at Cerebrocast.com, the official landing page for the podcast. You can write in with your questions, comments, and feedback to Cerebrocast at gmail.com. 
In very exciting news, because you demanded it, I have started a Patreon. It is at patreon.com slash Cerebrocast. For just $5 a month, you are entitled to a special bonus episode once a month and can give me input on what you'd like to hear in that episode. You'll also get access to a private patron-only channel on the Cerebro Fan Discord. I'm really excited about this. I was hesitant because this has just been a fun hobby for me, but the support has been so overwhelming. So thank you all for supporting. I really appreciate it. Patreon.com slash Cerebrocast. As always, thank you for listening. And until next time, bye. Bye, guys. Thank you so much. This was great fun, Connor. Thanks for having me. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, people mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world.